Sup Freaks, it's your boy Marty Bent here to introduce this episode of Tales from the Crypt. And the immense, immense, immense pleasure of sitting down with John Seth, a Bitcoin podcaster OG. Uh, talked about a bunch of things, not only Bitcoin. Uh, we talked about the current state of the U.S. and the polarized politics within it. Uh, the essential rights in the Constitution. We hit on art and NFTs which I uh, stayed away from Twitter this weekend, but looking over some of the discourse that has happened over this weekend seems like a pretty uh, interesting topic. Uh, I'm still not completely sold on NFTs. I don't know if I'll ever own digital art. I prefer the physical stuff, but I think John Seth makes some compelling cases towards the end of this episode. Uh, we talk about, on top of that, uh, miners as energy pirates, I'm not going to describe the whole episode to you freaks as you're about to listen to it. After you listen to it, make sure you go check out our good friends at the motherfucking Cash App if you haven't already. All right, the Cash App is helping us do many things. They're helping us stack sats, send sats, receive sats, and sell sats if you so please. We're saying sats, 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 sats because sats can be the standard within the app. If you don't want to buy fractions of Bitcoin, you can change it to a sat standard and buy whole sats. On top of this, uh, you can DCA into sats, dollar cost average. You can set it and forget it. You can buy daily, weekly, bi-weekly within the app. You set it and forget it. Uh, get that peace of mind to know that you're current, constantly, excuse me, currently and constantly stacking sats, uh, smoothing out that price volatility. On top of this, they have the cash app investing. If you're interested in the stonk market, if you're a stonk trader and you want to stack a sliver of a stonk, you can do that now via Cash App Investing. If your favorite stonk's a little too expensive, you can buy as little as $1. Because all this is directly connected to your bank account, there's no four to five day waiting period to start stacking sats and slivers of stonks today. Uh, in fact, Cash App may even be your bank account. They're offering account number and routing numbers to users so you can get your paychecks direct deposited into the app. On top of this, they have their boost program, which allows you to... Uh, save money at partner merchants. Uh, they have a personalized debit card. Uh, they're becoming a new bank of the future. So go download the Cash App if you haven't already. And when you do, make sure you use the code StackingSats. That's S-T-A-C-K-I-N-G-S-A-T-S. You're going to get $10, and $10 is going to go to our good friends at Owls Lacrosse. That's Owls Lacrosse. <laughs> download the Cash App. Enjoy this episode with John Seth. Take care. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Probably should be. All right, we've already been having a pretty good conversation. I'm liking the vibe so far. Freaks. <laughs> We're sitting down with the legendary John Seth, somebody I've... Uh, been following in this space for for years one of the <laughs> he runs the worst podcast in in uh all of bitcoin and cryptocurrency and i, I run it poorly <laughs> have you put out an episode anytime recently we haven't put out an episode in months yeah. i mean mainly because like well i was gonna make excuses it's just laziness yeah i'll blame it on sean 
<laughs> he's really lazy well it seems like you're running a, a successful business so i'm sure yeah yeah but the podcast is uh is more fun right <laughs> uh but yeah i mean the pandemic and everything else kind of put up you know put a put kind of a stop and everything made it a little bit difficult to schedule stuff and you know I'm I'm a fat guy, so I didn't want to like get stuck in the crossfire of like coronavirus. So, uh, and I don't trust Sean not to get it. And we kiss a lot, so like it's just not gonna <laughs> like it's not gonna work for me to have a pandemic that's spread through kissing while we're recording. What uh what is the corona vibe like in Florida? Are people spreading it at the beaches? Oh, they don't give a fuck. <laughs> like i i feel like i mean florida's a place i feel like people could be running down the beach and yelling i have covid and, and everyone'd be like oh okay <laughs> another day in florida i mean you probably run a, a bigger risk of getting stuck in the in the ass with like a heroin needle yes and like injected down on broward uh than you do of getting covid though i mean like i'm sure that happens thirty thousand times a day too yeah people paint him as a as a bad person a bad politician but i've from what I've seen, been pretty impressed by Rob DeSantis's uh, handling of it, at least in the back. Well, end I would of this. say if the entire media apparatus nationwide has to turn against you in order to try to turn you into like an evil, disgusting man, you're probably pretty good at your job. Right. Uh, <laughs> that's what we were talking about before. Uh, before we hit record, the the news of uh, it's coming to light about the Brianna Taylor stuff. Yeah. Oh, I, we were just talking. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the whole story that we've been fed for three months is bullshit. And that that blew my mind. I like I I had bought it, and you know I it 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 appeals to the sort of libertarian or, or anarchic you know ness that still exists in me. Um, I I don't like no knock warrants. I think they're bad. I think the idea that Someone can come to your door and knock it down um, because you might throw like four balloons down a toilet filled with cocaine. I mean, if if that's the amount, if, if they're coming and executing uh, on a drug warrant wherein you have so few drugs you can flush them all down the toilet in three minutes, I mean, that's that's a problem. <laughs> that's stupid. You, they shouldn't have been there in the first place. I agree. Uh, and yeah. And, and, you know, like we're talking now, like this woman, apparently she was sleeping in her bed and they executed a no-knock warrant and they go in. Her boyfriend, and this is a story I've been told, uh, believes that someone's breaking in and grabs his gun and starts shooting. Well, I think it was an apartment, right? Yes, an apartment building, so, I believe. So for me, the story's always kind of had some questions. Number one, if it's an apartment, it's pretty small. So, like, where did he keep his gun that he just had it to instantly start shooting the guys coming in the door. I've been, I've been trying to figure that one out. He didn't, like, come downstairs from upstairs after hearing a creak. Like, an apartment's small. So, like, was, he, was it on his chest and he was, like, sleeping with it in a gun sock and he was, like, a teddy bear? Or was it, like, in a safe and he's just he sleeps in the safe? Or was it maybe, like, he has, like, 12 AK-47s sitting around the house? I don't know. But it never that part never made sense to me. But apart from that, I was willing to basically accept that there's something I don't know and that, you know, a no-knock raid is a no-knock raid and those are bad. So generally, like, I'm okay with having that discussion. But then we find out today that it, it wasn't a no-knock raid. They knocked several times. Nobody answered. Then they breached the door. And Breonna Taylor wasn't sleeping like we were told. So, I mean, 
The whole story's bullshit. Yeah. Should we be surprised, though? We got duped again. I, yeah, I'm surprised that I keep getting duped because, like, it's a, it's a new level. Because I, I, I don't believe... Okay, I, I've been trying to... I've been parsing what I what I think about all of this because I strongly believe that police need reform in this country. I've begged, I've begged people I know not to become police over the years because I think that there's, like... There are systemic problems in police departments. Now, I don't think that they're racial. I think that they're largely... Uh, having to do with things like militarization. I think police buying these MRAPs after, uh, after the war and giving them, like, army clothes, I think that those are all, like, problems. I think when you give civilians power and clothes and vehicles to go and act like Rambo, you're going to have some problems. And I think that that's... I think that that's what's happened over the years, and I think that that the the problems have manifest not along racial lines, but along power complex, power complex lines. And I agree. Like, I want to be out there protesting police brutality. I would like to propose problems and solutions. I would like to propose solutions that are beneficial to everybody who has to deal with the police and not just black people or just white people or whatever. It's clearly not a racial issue. And the data backs that up. I thought it was for years until I went and actually grabbed a data set and ran the regressions myself to see what it was uh, that police were doing and whether I was right about whether racism is a problem in police departments. Yeah. That's uh, taboo to say these days, but I completely agree. It's a, it's a, it's a power complex thing you're giving people who may have been picked on in high school or want power over other individuals getting into these positions of power and then again to tie it back to the militarization the uh the equipment and uniforms that they're getting uh coinciding with the the lack of training that they get compared to the the military personnel that uh, that previously owned that equipment is astonishing uh yeah absolutely and and you know the thing is Watching these riots erupt, I've never felt in my life, except until recently, that police need MRAPs. And now I watch these riots break out, and I'm like, you know what? They need tanks. <laughs> right. Well, are these spontaneous riots? Are these authentic grassroots? Well, that's the thing. If, if in fact, they're not spontaneous, and let's say they're coordinated by Chinese dissidents or Russian dissidents or whatever it is, well, I mean, then they really need tanks because we're at war. Yeah. Not just internally as a country, but... We're literally at war, like externally. It seems like Trump is onto that tip. He uh, we designate New York City, Portland, and Seattle as anarchist zones. Yeah, but that's that's different. It's not so much that they're not willing to, uh, or that they are in a state of anarchy, or that they are being influenced by like foreign dissidents. It's a state of it, it, the the acknowledgement is that they refused federal help to quash the riots and they commanded their police forces to do less than high quality policing in order to allow the riots to happen. So, I mean, perhaps uh, at the mayoral level, there's coordination with dissidents, but I don't think so. I think it's just these mayors have sympathies that are politically problematic. Well, and that, and by the way, when it comes down to it, I don't, I've tried over the years not to have a political ideology for the most part. And I have very few principles I care about. I care about fiscal policy. I care about the First Amendment. 
I think that you cannot have the First Amendment without the Second Amendment. And I, uh, I, I fervently hate Marxists. And that's it. I hate commies. That's it. Those, those are the only things that I, I, I believe uh, or that I strongly believe in. I think that's uh, I think it's a very simple uh, political ideology to hold, and I I feel very similar. Uh, I like the Fourth Amendment too. I think we were talking with Brianna Taylor on lawful search and seizure. But why do we have like the drug war to begin with, and why does it enable um, no knock warrants and stuff like that? Even though this wasn't the case, but bringing it back to the riots and local governments and mayors, and did you catch that last week when? Who was it? Newt Gingrich was trying to bring up George Soros. Fund, I saw that too. Funding district I mean, attorneys. It's ridiculous because like there's plenty of evidence that he is funding, you know, attorney generals, attorneys general, attorney district attorneys, d- district attorneys, districts attorneys, um, all over the United States with like millions and millions of dollars. They're they're pumping millions into these campaigns, uh, and it's weird. I I mean I don't have a lot of it, it might not be George himself, but it's organizations that he controls. And, uh, you know, I mean, I've, I've read I've read biographies of, of George Soros, particularly his autobiography. I'm pretty sure I read that a few years ago. And he's he's a perfectly interesting guy. He's made a lot of money doing things that, you know, Bitcoiners hate him for. But I think the thing that people don't realize is that George Soros has also failed a lot. Like what he did in London, I think he also tried to do in like the Philippines and wasn't successful. And he's tried to do it a number of times. Or he's tried to collapse economies or, you know, uh, he's invested in the collapse of economies and it hasn't always been successful. So I think people need to understand he is not God, but he himself and those that know him say that he has a bit of a God complex and he's a little bit obsessed with his legacy. Uh, And so, you know, I don't think it's out of bounds to bring him up. And I think I thought that was a little ridiculous that they couldn't even have a discussion about it. Right. No. So I come from a city where. It's becoming apparent that he funded the district attorney of Philadelphia and Krasner, whatever his name is, and just speaking with people, friends and family at home, they're like, this dude's completely fucking up the city. And when uh, they're like implementing the the San Francisco law of we're not going to arrest you if you have quote unquote petty crimes of breaking into cars and robbing people, isn't it? It's fucking. And I've been fucking robbed in San Francisco like three years ago with a wine country of my in-laws my wife and we went to golden gate park to go to an aids memorial in which my mother-in-law's brother his name was on it we went to go find it was a very emotional day we go she's wiping tears off her eyes we get to our car windows broken everything stolen was did he graffiti his name on it or is he an aids guy <laughs> he's an aids guy oh, okay yeah <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, you're gonna put get, my name on a memorial too. You're gonna get Marty. me. You're gonna get me in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Your parents don't listen to the show, remember? No, um, but no, I mean, yeah, it's. I think. I think it, like there's a lot going on right now politically, and it, it goes against my sort of ethos that everything is always like getting a little better and it's all right. But I mean, I, I think that the United States is on is on tenuous ground right now. I think that the First Amendment is under attack. I think. I think that that the. Uh, I think that, you know, to your point, I think all the amendments, I'm a fan of them. I just don't care that much about them because I think all of them proceed from the first. Mm-hmm. And I think the second exists to protect anything that proceeds from the first. So I don't think that you have any amendments without the second, and I don't think you have any amendments without the first. 
Um, I think that you require the right to free speech. And we're really the only country that has that and understands it. And it is unequivocal. I think that that is the thing that particularly foreigners don't understand. And the other thing that's been interesting to me this election is that foreigners don't understand what's going on in the country, in America right now. They really seem to think they have a good handle on it. And you'll talk to them and you're like, do you know, you don't have any idea that like a huge portion of this country believes that Donald Trump rented a hotel room in Moscow and peed on it with a bunch of <laughs> naked women right. and like, and asked them to golden shower him. And that's like the basis of a lot of the political ideology as it exists today. And you ask people this and they're like, oh, of course he did that. We right. have celebrities literally tweeting and looking for the tape. And you know, this is this is the basis of America's political, uh, like, revolutionary spirit right now. Is that Donald Trump got peed on by a bunch of ladies in a hotel room that Barack Obama once slept in? <laughs> it's that, and then it's uh. And they don't believe it when you tell them that. By the way, they're like, ah, yeah, yeah, okay, bullshit. Yeah, it's the same thing with the uh, the Mexicans early sending rapists and drug dealers. They cut that complete quote out of context. But it doesn't matter. I mean, just like the fact that like half of America right now believes that there are uh, Russians hiding under every rock and that Donald Trump is like calling Putin every morning to get his like directions. I mean, I, I would say it's about half of America. I've been having this discussion with a bunch of foreigners. They don't believe me. They really do not. But like I hear it. I hear it every day from people that Donald Trump is a stooge of Putin that Putin is uh, that, that, you know, Putin's directing America, that he's a Manchurian candidate, etc. Yeah, I hear the same thing. Uh, come from a family, it leans very, uh, very left, and they believe they believe this. But yeah, you bring it up to people, and it gets to the screaming match, and uh, I've just resigned myself to just shutting up. Just like, you know what, you'll find out one day. Well, so yesterday on conservative Twitter, I noticed there was a there was this article being passed around uh, from the New York Times a long time ago, where the New York Times did an article on people that believe that they're being followed. Do you remember this? Uh, no. So there's there's this phenomenon around the United States where mental patients believe that they're being followed, they're being stalked by somebody. They don't know who's doing it, but they believe it strongly. And uh, yesterday, a, a bunch of conservatives were tweeting this around, being like, "This is what's this is what people like believe about the, uh, the the Nazis all over America. This is everyone believes that there's all of these Nazis, and I've never seen one." Neither. And I'm hearing this all over the world that like right wing fascism is sprouting up, and I'm like, I just where? People will point to Charlottesville. That's usually the go to. Yeah, one guy. Right. Yeah, there was one guy. There was many men and with torches. Maybe there were like there were like eighty others. Yeah. That's all of them. Yeah. No, I mean I haven't. Eh. So that gets to the point. Like, are are we being not us, uh, particularly you and I, but. Uh, the country is being divided on race lines for a larger nefarious plan by who, whoever it may be, the people around the media, banks, whatever it may be, power structure of the world. Well, I think that's the difficulty of this is that, like, it's very difficult not to respond to what's going on right now without also becoming a conspiracist. Right. And that's, I think that's the difficulty is because, like, well, the... the the easy response to any critique of it is like, oh, you're a conspiracist. You're ridiculous. You believe in all, you know, you must believe, be one of those people that believe George Soros is funding all of this. <laughs> you know, I hear that kind of thing all the time. And I'm like, uh, okay, um, no, I'm, I'm not. Uh, you know, conspiracy 
Like, I, you know, whatever. I'll believe in whatever conspiracy. I'll get that off the table. Fine. But that's not, that's not, you know, I'm trying very hard to like be rational about what's going on. But as in America, I've seen this like descent into chaos so fast. And it's inexplicable how like neighbors have turned against neighbors and literally, literally believe their neighbors who they were best friends with last year are now Nazis. Right. It's crazy. And it's like, so going back to conspiracy theorists, I'm up here pulling up a Dave Collin tweet, my favorite tweet about conspiracy theorists ever. I am a conspiracy theorist. I believe men and women of wealth and power conspire. If you don't think so, you're what is called an idiot. If you believe the stuff but fear the label, you're what, called, you're, or what is called a coward. It's like they use that term to just shut down any conversation. You're not like, like Newt Gingrich, like perfect example last week, wasn't allowed to bring up George Soros for any reason. Well, the conservatives have, have not done themselves any favors. Like, yeah, it's true. A lot of these things, well, for example, the George Soros thing. That's sort of what sucks, too, is you're forced to defend people you don't even like in the first place. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing with George Soros, it has a grain of truth. George Soros does fund a lot of shit. And he also gets blamed for funding everything. But the left has their own bogeyman as well. Like, the Koch brothers are the bogeyman of the left and um you know there's there's all sorts of like right wing like rich people that they love to say are very you know influential and in, in changing elections but you're not allowed to like point at the ones that they got but i mean i don't think the right's done itself any favors by sort of attributing all malice to george soros but there are things that george soros has funded yeah. and i think it's okay to point them out yeah <sighs> i also think that this is a particularly egregious time like I don't see, I see the, I see like a sort of communist thread throughout a lot of these protests and riots. And the symbolism's all over the place. Yeah, but it's, it's more than that. Like, so here's the thing. Like, I, again, it's another one of those things. You want to, you want to refrain from saying Hitler had a dog and you have a dog, therefore you're Hitler, right? So you don't want to say like the Maoist revolution had X and this revolution has X and therefore it's a Maoist revolution. But I see these similarities and I think it is more a uh, more like a Chinese revolution than say a Russian revolution. I see these very, very striking problematic similarities. And I've seen this over the years, like the children uh, being raised up against the adults, which is very weird. I remember like David Hogg, uh, you know, taking a place and, and uh, and saying all you know, he can't wait till the next till the, till the old generation dies. And I I saw that. I remember during Wall Street, the uh, Occupy Wall Street. I would hear people say like, anybody who's rich needs to be killed, which is you know it's 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 smacks of Cambodia. I see these sort of very communistic phraseologies coming coming into parlance, and people just kind of like we're in America. People brush it off like, oh, that'll never happen. That's just that's just a thing the kids are saying, but. It does happen, and I I don't I I don't know the extent to to I don't know how far this will go, and the reason is is because I'm astounded by certain claims being made that three years ago you could have stood up against like, let's say, I say uh, black people are more often killed by cops than white people. It's just a false claim. A few years ago you could have called it a false claim. Well now, I'm watching people who I, I know a guy who wrote a book a few years ago about 
how college ideologies are a problem, like these sort of like woke ideologies. It was a good 15 years ago he wrote this book. And how if it, you know, makes its way into the mainstream, that would be a big problem. You know, college students need reform at the university, et cetera. Well, he's a full-on woke leftist now. His really? son is part of Antifa. Really? Yeah. And I, I, it happened in the last year. That's and I don't understand it. There's like a brainwashing going on. And I hear people say the same thing about people that like Trump, that they're brainwashed. And I'll talk to them about it. And I can't, the, the Trump they describe, the Trump t that I describe is this guy who's kind of buffoonish, oafish, and stupid, and seems to have a pretty good, uh, a pretty good sort of inkling of the zeitgeist. And somehow is able to navigate, he's very good at navigating sort of in a chess-like way, situational, uh, political situations that, you know, where people try to corner him. He seems to be able to squirrel out of corners. So... He's a rhetorical That's, master when it comes to that. Like, yeah, but he's a rhetorical moron that as <laughs> in well. real life, right? Yeah. So it's really weird. And he seems to have a pretty good understanding of what the media will and will not bite on. He's like a fisher of men, a fisher of media. So I give him that sort of credit. I think he's, you know, fine. I don't think that he's uh, Superman. I, mean, I don't think anyone is. I would want to attach my reputation to anybody in case like he actually does pull out a gun and shoot someone on fifth Avenue. Uh, so I don't want to like attach my reputation to it, but you know, he seems fine. But then I hear people describe the Trump that I've seen and it resembles nothing like the Trump that I've seen or the Trump that like anyone else I know has seen. And I've, I'm fairly at the moment politically engaged. So I'm trying to figure out what they're seeing. And it's nothing like what I'm looking at. It's like we're literally, I've heard people describe it as two different movies, but I wish that, I wish that people could be here to understand what that's like. To literally hear somebody say something that is a complete lie and to stand by it, even when you show them it's a lie. Right. Like I've seen that in debates, but never in sort of the public dialectic where you're like talking about events. Like, and then he was going 30 miles an hour. Well, how do you know? Well, here's a radar gun. No, he was going 60. This is the radar gun. It says 30. It was 60. Believe me. It's, yeah. It's Trump derangement syndrome. It's real. It, it, people vehemently just don't want him to be correct or uh, have a semblance of success or what others would deem success. Well, how did you get here, though? Right. How That's did you get here? Like, how did, how did we go from being reasonable... And able, like, I, I think of 9-11. I mean, I, I don't know how old you are, but I imagine you remember 9-11. Yeah, I was in fifth grade. I was, I was 10 at the time. Wow. Yeah. So what are your memories of that like? Uh, the day, the day of, I, I was a class of teachers wanted to tell us, and I was that little asshole. I was like, hey, can I use the computer? It was like back when... The internet was just getting into schools, and I went on like CNN.com and saw right. it. And then my mom picked me up. She was crying. Um, had a lot of had a few uncles working in Manhattan. Didn't know what was going on with them. Wow. But then in the uh, yeah the aftermath, I remember Freedom Fries. I remember uh, them invigorating. Every American, every American, no matter who they were, had a flag in their lawn. Yeah, no, they really, they really uh, drummed up the nationalistic fervor. In the but schools, they didn't. it just it, it was Americans are very proud people, and and it was like, you know, they got they they put those prisoners sewing the flags into overtime, and like 
every American went out and bought bought those little uh, vinyl pieces of plastic and put them in their lawns and they paid hundreds of dollars for them and they, they showed their American pride. I don't know how we go from there to America is a systemically racist system, everything's broken and we need to tear down the system. And I, I have a feeling it's it's to do with the fact that millennials seem to believe that like history started in like 20 or like 2006. Yeah, well, that's another good point. And we're going to rehash a conversation we had on Block Digest a few months ago, whenever the fuck that was. But the managerial class and uh, what's the term I'm looking for? You basically have a managerial class. Executive? Excuse me? The executive class? I mean, like. Now, the. Uh, I forget. I'll, it'll come to me. But basically, you have this class of people that were able to. Uh, separate themselves from the working class via uh, via salary. You go to college, you get your degree, that affords you a better salary, higher income, and then you can look at uh, the welder down the street, the plumber, and say, hey, I'm making more money than I'm smarter than that person. Uh, well, that used to be true. Yeah. And that's now with the, the flood of people being forced into university system to get degrees as a millennial, sold that dream, you have to go to college to be successful in life, and you have these people who are expecting to go through the university system, get their degree, uh, and then be able to materially separate themselves from the working class via income. Well, they're, they're also a, I mean, look, there, there's a lot of problems I have with college. And I, I ask this question to everybody. First of all, in discussions of college, everyone ignores supply and demand, right? So like you, you think about degrees and if you think about, you know, way back in the day, only a few people graduated with degrees. It was a way to distinguish yourself. Well, now everybody gets a degree, so like you have plenty of those. And, and actually, this relates later on to the discussion we'll have on Bitcoin. But you only need so many uh, bachelors. You only need so many masters of engineering. You only need so many PhDs to fill professor slots. slots. So when you have enough, like you, you no longer have these sort of like stratified career job, you know, career goals or anything like that. You end up like with things like on the job training, right? So like you want to raise your salary $40,000 Well, you need to go from like low level uh, employee to manager. And, and maybe you work at Ernst and Young or something like that to get to that level. And you, as you go up, you increase your job opportunities at other places through on the job training. And maybe you went to college to go to EY. The term is elite overproduction. Is that is that the uh, is that the getting too many university yeah. degrees? Yeah, you have people who who assume they're going to be in the quote unquote elite class and they're overproduced and pricing each other out. Whereas you have plumbers, and there's not that many people who want to be plumbers. And if you want to make a lot of money now, you go be a, be a plumber. Right. And you know what? You're not gonna you're not gonna earn a hundred thousand dollars more when you retire than when you started. You're gonna always earn you know, what 80,000 is today. And maybe if you're really good, you'll earn 120, which means in like 40 years, maybe you'll have earned, maybe your earning power will be up because, you know, inflation and whatnot. But like, you'll have earned approximately 80 to 120,000 a year if you're good. And, and you'll retire with a few million dollars, enough money to retire, like in the Midwest or anywhere that's like a reasonable uh, living price and, and have a pretty good living standard. So, I mean, you're right. That is what it is. Elite overproduction. And now I see people like they graduate from college and what do they do? They go work at the Apple store as a Apple genius or they go work at Starbucks or they go work, you know, other places. But, you know, never McDonald's. Right. I, they couldn't deign to work there. 
but they'll work at a, as a high-class barista for the exact same amount down the road at Starbucks. And that's, that's all we've done is instead of stratifying income, we've stratified sort of uh, job uh, signaling, uh, like sort of this like economic signaling through the fact that you're able to get a job at Ruby Tuesday. You, you don't need a degree for that. No. I mean, or or at like a Starbucks, you don't need a degree for that. What well, do you think these people really would be working at these places? They they think they should be writing philosophy tomes that make it popular and make them a lot of money. And I think that's what well, I mean. You can do that now too, though, on YouTube. You can. These people go. Not all. Everybody goes to the university system. Is so motivated, right? Right, but it's the ambitious. It's the ambitionless class. They go to university with no plan. And I mean, here's the question I have for you. And and like I, I ask this question a lot to people because it it kind of blows their mind. Because I mean, I think they've thought about it, but they've never really asked the question. So, when you get out of university with an engineering degree, how much do you make? Let's say you get an engineering job, presuming. Uh, what type of engineering? Software engineering. So you build bridges. Uh, one hundred twenty thousand, something like that. That seems reasonable mm-hmm. uh, as a starting job, and yeah. then maybe eventually two fifty, three hundred. Right? There's like pretty yeah. big leaps in engineering. One hundred twenty thousand. Yeah. But that's that's like one of the bigger, you know, uh, and and how, let's say you go to a mid price school. How much do you pay for that four year degree? I'll just go at the state school in the state. I'm from Pennsylvania, Penn State. You would probably pay eighty grand for four years. So let's say that you want to go and, you know, how much do you think a starting job would be for, let's say, uh, I don't know, a, a women's or a, a femme studies major? 60 grand. I think that's high, but let's call it 60. Yeah. How much do you pay for that at the same school? Same thing, 80 grand. Why? Because you were told you need to. Well, I mean, but but why? Why why is it that a job, we know that the jobs on the other end are X. You know, like, it's just that people are mispricing the risk they're taking on, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're taking these jobs that they're paying the same amount as a university engineering grad to get. But they're, they're, they're taking these degrees that set them up for, like, forty-five dollars to $70,000 jobs. Whereas the engineering students are taking one that, that sets them up for $120,000. I think that the universities have some culpability there, but I also don't understand why it is that people are willing to pay these exorbitant amounts for these these titles and these degrees that literally they come out of university with with no earning potential. Well, do you think a 17-year-old is cognitively competent enough to make those type of investment decisions well, at that age? Can do it. And it is an investment decision, by the way. Yeah. That's the thing people don't quite understand is that your degree is uh, your ultimate investment decision. It's the first one you make yeah. as an adult. Yeah. No, it is. Well, just as a millennial, uh, went to an all guys preparatory high school, went went to an expensive university in Chicago, and that was the goal throughout grade school, middle school, high school. And the parents feed that, right? They're like, hey, you got to do this. You got to do this. Oh, they this. absolutely do. I mean, it's it's a cultural norm at this point, and it's very interesting to watch because. There's no, there's no reason for it to persist. And this is the thing. The normal course of things would be for people to evaluate it and be like, universities don't work. And then to stop going. Yeah. My brother. Instead, they, universities don't work. My brother and I'm I. I'm going to Harvard next year. My brother. Universities don't work. I'm going to the University of Minnesota next year. Right. Universities don't work. Where are you going to university next year? I mean, like, nobody stops. Yeah. Why is that? I, I don't know. I, I think it's because they still, they still, 
they view it as this thing that's supposed to work. I don't know. It's like when I was a kid, I was uh, I was raised in the church, and I was told that nobody was having sex before marriage. And I felt so super betrayed when I found out that everybody else was having sex before marriage. Well, when I was younger, I was like, oh, everybody w- was doing that? I grew up going to Catholic school. They didn't say that. They said you, you get a lot of anal. They said if you had sex before you get married, you're going to hell. So it was different. There you go. And it, and then you find out that all of your like you know classmates have been you know hanky panky in, and you're kind of you feel betrayed. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's kind of you don't stop necessarily doing you know doing what you were doing. You somehow justify it or whatever. And I see that same sort of phenomenon. People are like, well, it, college doesn't work, but it should work. <sighs> and so they keep doing it. And I don't understand why that is. I don't understand how you stop that cycle. I, I think the university should be complicit in, like, you know, <laughs> making sure that these kids get out and actually have jobs that are reasonable. I think that I think that degrees should be priced for the risk that you're taking on. I think that, like, if if a if a university, if the doc, if there's a lack of doctors in a country, I think I don't know. Maybe they should lower the price of becoming a doctor for a few years. Right. Like, I don't see why the, the price always has to go up. I don't see why there's no price discovery. None of that. This is why me personally, I I put more of the onus on the government and the universities. More, not onus, but uh, uh, blame on the universities and the the government. The government's offering these loans. The university's like, all right, we know these kids are going to get these fucking loans. Let's just jack up the prices. They're being told that they have to do this. So they're going to take out the loans. Right. We're going to get the money. So maybe a way to stop that cycle is to... Stop giving out loans from the government. Yeah, it's clearly exploitive. But at the same time, like, you know, I believe strongly in personal responsibility. So you go to college, like, I mean, generation before this one, and, and I think you and I are probably part of this generation. Um, but the generation before this one and every other generation has said, like, you know, you get to a certain age and uh, you kind of go like, OK, I've made some mistakes, uh, made, made a lot of bad decisions. I'm going to pick myself up and we're going to move forward. Right. And this generation just doesn't seem to have that ability. No. I mean, it's been written about and talked about for years now. We're the, uh, the participation trophy generation. Uh, we expect everything to be handed to us. And again, it's not every millennial, obviously, um, but uh, collectively, it seems yeah. to be the theme. Yeah, and I, I think that that's a I think that's a, a sad state of affairs, but uh, but anyhow, enough about the university stuff. I, I do I do I I do lament sort of the the way, like these riots and things have gone because I, I thought there was a real opportunity going back to all of this police stuff. I thought when uh, George Floyd happened, there was a real opportunity to have a conversation about things like police brutality, militarization, police behavior. Etc. 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 Police unions. I started seeing liberals talk about police unions, which was fascinating to me because, like, that's been a conservative issue for forty years. Yeah. And to watch them kind of come around, I was like, okay, okay, maybe there's some like reform that can happen here. But they turned it into this partisan racial like bullshit so quickly that I've never seen anything like it. I- I've never. I've never watched something that was so close and yet completely the opportunity completely and utterly squandered. Well, they beat up Trump supporters that showed up to these rallies to march with them. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's weird how quickly once they decide, I don't want to say they once, once the narrative was 
race, once it quickly became that, how quickly things like critical race theory hopped in and started being talked about more, particularly in, in government agencies and got to it, the point. It was before that, though. I mean, I've been hearing things from government agencies saying that people are a little bit afraid of talking internally. They're afraid of saying anything because they've been they've been doing these like transgender trainings and everything else for like a number of a number of years. Like this is a thing that leaked out of the university. It used to be that these ideas were ideas that you played with in university, like Plato, and they just they didn't leave. Like you went into the real world, you're like, okay, I had a lot of really interesting years of thinking about the weirdest things, and that was fun and it really expanded my mind. But that's not what's going on now. Yeah. It- have you ever read up on like the the leftist bombings of the seventies and the homegrown quote unquote terrorism that that happened there? With the weather underground and such. Yes, I, I actually don't know a lot about it, but I mean, have you? Uh, yes, I've read. I mean, I haven't read books about it. I've, I've read many articles about it, and it was very interesting. Is these people were bombing universities, government buildings. Uh, kidnapping people. At one point, they took over a hospital in, in the Upper West Side and were mandating that the hospital operate in a certain fashion. And it turned out they were all just taking heroin up there, just using it right. to, to get heroin. And then, so some of these people got arrested and spent good time in jail. Uh, but like lawyers associations and funds, which is actually funny because that's becoming another thing now with the uh, the riot arrest and the, the bail funds. It's similar things back then. And, and some of the some of the worst uh at, or some of the worst aggressors of the violence of the 70s wound up trickling into the university system and not only the university system the Ivy League like Cornell, Columbia, Harvard and they've been running these departments for five decades now or well they probably got out yeah. in the 80s well, you know what, what's what's funny to me is I've been watching this sort of discussion uh, that's been occurring with people like Jordan Peterson and such and I've been very frustrated by watching the academics come out on this because I've, I've been watching it for 30 years. Camille Paglia started talking about this in the early 90s. Great Philadelphian. Yeah. And uh, she's been talking about it since like 91, 92, even, maybe even in the 80s. And nobody else joined her until it affected their lives. And that's that's what I think is really, really interesting about all of this, like, Jordan Peterson likes to talk about how you can't know whether you're a good man unless you're presented with the opportunity to be a bad man, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's actually, that's true. But why is it that these guys didn't say anything until it affected them? Why is it that they weren't early? It was obvious. It's herd mentality. It's herd mentality. It's easier to just go with the herd. Right. But then you have these people like the Weinstein brothers who are gaining popularity, and they didn't say dick until evergreen right but here we you know here we were 20 years ago could have prevented it it's funny how selective they are too like camille paglia very strong woman voice why can't we get behind her uh someone why why is she completely ignored and shut out of this like sort of movement she's the one that started talking about it the earliest yeah and you know she's also the only one of them who's smart you know you i don't know if you've ever read any camille paglia She's a cultural critic. She's phenomenal. You she read is. her books. Uh, she she does you know critiques on poetry and critiques on culture and art, and they're they're insightful and interesting. And she's a thinker. Yeah, she's a modern day philosopher. I catch more of her her recorded interviews. That's the way I like to consume some of her content. I can't read too good, so uh, 
Mass, but that's that's probably the way the words are going through her head. Yeah, it's. Uh... No, I really like her, and that's but that's been the thing. I've been I've been reading Camille Paglia for twenty years, you know, twenty twenty five years, and and it's uh, most people are going to hear this conversation. I have no idea who she is. Well, yeah, and they should. Right. Uh, and she's she's been sounding the alarm, and that's the thing. She's shut out. She's shut out of this because you know you have a bunch of. I mean, this this is the the white male privilege. Uh, the reality of it, like if if it exists, it exists in that space because Camille Paglia has been saying stuff for many years. And like when this all occurred, like everyone's giving Jordan, Jordan uh, Peterson the credit and the, the Weinstein brothers. They didn't do anything until it was too late. You know, Camille Paglia was the Jesus. She was the one that was like sitting there telling us that, like, you know, the, the kingdom of heaven is here. We can all have it or or we can make this world hell. And uh, and everyone was like, oh, okay, crazy lady, go do your thing, go get tenure ship, and just like shut up. But like, we'll let you say it because you're pretty good at like cultural critics, you know, stuff like that. She's she's very much like a Noam Chomsky type figure, uh, but but the opposite. Yeah, and he Noam Chomsky's not even good enough anymore. He almost got canceled this year. It's it's absurd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, even Noam Chomsky contributes largely a, a lot to this. I mean, like the old guards of. Uh, of intellectualism are, you know, what, what I've liked about them over the years, I mean, Noam Chomsky is a good example. The beauty of Noam Chomsky is that Noam Chomsky is sort of like, a, 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 encompasses both the devil and the angel. He's good and he's bad. He says a lot of, you know, he likes, he, he likes to weigh in on foreign policy. I think he's a idiot when it comes to foreign policy. Yeah. But you know what? Like his book, Manufacturing Consent, and all of these other things that he's written, uh, about sort of how society and elites like build narratives and use them for their own ends. I think that stuff is, is genius. And the kind of stuff that like you read the book and you're like, oh, that's what's going on. And he's been saying it for longer. Yeah. He came out. I mean, and he's been consistent too. That's the other thing. That's what right. I look for in people I try to respect is consistency throughout time. And Yeah. I, I mean, I like that Noam Chomsky is consistent. He's principled. I don't agree with him on everything, but like I, I, think I. That, I think his insights on certain things are very worthwhile, and I think the same. I mean, Camille's the same way, and it's it's very it's interesting to me how we've sort of sloughed off these individuals who were early and given this entire movement over the, the counter movement, if you will, to wokeism, over to these newcomers who don't really know what's going on, <clears throat> who speak in platitudes, and who weren't brave enough to do anything about it until it got them fired. Yeah, that is a very good point. I never put that together, but yeah, and it's freaks. If you haven't read any of her work or watched any of her interviews, go check out some of Camille Paglia's work. It's incredibly insightful, and it's actually yeah. incredibly ironic that she does it all from Philadelphia, one of the most liberal cities in the world. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, she she really is great, and you know, but that's that's the thing I, I think about a lot of this is that like I I'm wondering where if we've crossed the Rubicon. And if, like, there's no going back kind of thing. Well, this is when you bring it back to Block Digest and the conversation we had there, the Second Amendment. Like, uh, I like that you like the Second Amendment. I like it, too. Um, that, and you, I think you described it as that emergency button in the back of every or gun owners' minds. Like, hey, we'll take so much of the shit, but if push comes to shove, we have we have guns. Right. That's why I uh, promote Amon Bundy for president, because I think he's the only one who's ever successfully put together a militia. Right. But, uh, I, I, yeah, exactly. I do think that there's the beauty of America is that we have the nuclear option. And I think that that's the thing that's like far underestimated 
by these foreign entities that are trying to like you know sow dissent is that america has a nuclear option and i don't think that anyone ever wants to use it but we have it and that's that's a thing that prevents a lot of what like these fascist regimes actually become what about kyle uh, rittenhouse uh, right but that's that's why the left has been so interested in trying to convince everybody that the people that have the guns are fascists right so this is a question that's been lingering in my mind uh based of conversations i've been having the last month particularly after the kyle rittenhouse event and then a couple weeks later when that trump supporter was just murdered in cold blood in portland like are we already in the midst of a civil war and can you only uh pinpoint when a civil war starts in retrospect yes and yes and i I know when it started i mean i i can tell everybody when this all started and and you know no one's going to think i'm right for another 10 years but i i've been saying this i mean i you can listen to my show a long time ago and i've been saying uh that we're on the verge but i think i'm wrong about that i think we've been in it for longer and i think the beginning of it was gamergate really yeah that was when all of the stops were pulled and if you started looking at Gamergate, I mean, first of all, games are a form of art and they're a form of dangerous art because, you know, they, they really can challenge assumptions and change minds. And they have the youth. They got the youths. And, uh, and during Gamergate, you saw this sort of like weird narrative built and you, they started doing this thing, the media generally, where they would do an interview with somebody and they would then write the article and the article would be filled with nothing that the interviewer was questioned about all sorts of lies fake things and just this complete sort of like depraved new type of journalism that i've been watching rise and i think this is the thing that people don't understand i've the news has never been good but there's been journalists before and you can find them and i can point to articles by these journalists there's a really good article uh, that I read the other day from uh, New Times, and it's, a, it's about uh, John McCain and whether or not he's a war hero. All right. So they follow this kind of nutty guy who has been campaigning against John McCain's status as a war hero for many, many years. He lost a son. He thinks his son's alive and that he's a POW and the government has been you know, preventing getting these, you know, going and finding these people. Uh, you know, he's the, the MIA POW flags, if you remember those. Mm-hmm. And he's one of these guys who really, like, wants to make sure everyone knows that John McCain is not a war hero. So the, the journalist basically does this thing where he goes through and he has a guy tell him what he believes. And the journalist writes it all down. And then he goes and he finds people that disagree with it. And he writes all of their contentions down and explains why they believe him to be wrong. The journalist never interjects what he thinks. He never does, like, you could walk away from the article thinking the journalist provided a bunch of evidence that he's not a war hero, or you can come away with the evidence or with the, from the article saying that, like, it's very clear to me that John McCain is a war hero. And that's what journalism was. It used to be this thing. There were journalists who were out there who would just go and look at, like, things and say, like, I don't know the answer at the end. Because there isn't always an answer. You can't know things. Like, this idea that John McCain was a war hero is is a objective an objective belief uh that we have because you know a lot of people have said he was and he said he was but there's people that disagree with it and it's not saying that like you should give as much credence to them 
You should at least evaluate it, though. You should put that into your, like, information chamber and decide whether any of their information is credence. And maybe it changes your mind. Maybe it doesn't. Yeah, no, that's a good point. If Gamergate was the start of that and thinking about just a couple of the topics we've already talked about, particularly crime stats. <laughs> can't right. Talk about, and, yeah. and, and what Gamergate did, too, is it pushed, it pushed the right into this weird corner where they became antagonists, right? So Gamergate turned right-wingers and people that weren't really right, even just like left-of-center centrists, into antagonists who, you know, do the OK symbol and stuff like that. And, and in fact, made the OK symbol, you know, a white nationalist symbol. Uh, they themselves seeded the idea, and then they proceeded to do this just to, like, just to... Fuck with people. Fuck with people. And, yeah. and it's funny. The antagonist sort of uh, jester place in society exists, and I'm glad it does. But we, we came, like, it used to be that you could, the reason that you could have arguments with people is because you aligned enough, you believed in things like objective reality. And when you have a whole class of people who suddenly, and it is sudden, rejected the idea of objective reality, like, you, you can't do anything. And that's why the left can't meme. The left doesn't understand archetypes. They don't understand that. Like, and you can see it all throughout like this pandemic shit uh the karen meme is a great example incredible the left believes that a karen is someone who doesn't wear a mask <laughs> right they don't even get it right but, but like that's not the case and 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 a karen is just a way to tell women to shut up and to say that they like don't have an opinion worthwhile which is funny ultimately but it's even more funny when leftists are using it right so a cell phone if you will yeah yeah, it's uh, it's very funny because like they don't even understand the irony of it. It's just a sexist meme, and it was funny when it wasn't serious. But now they're like, look at that Karen telling everyone that she doesn't want to wear a mask. I'm like, no, Karens tell other people what to do. They don't they don't tell you what they're doing. Like, they're not going to obey. Like that's different than get me your manager. You're not obeying me. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's the uh, yeah the picture of the woman in the cell phone calling the cops on a on a barbecue is what you have to imagine. Right. Yeah, the left. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's it's very weird, and I think it's probably, I mean, like, your show's going to have a lot of people. I'm sure you have a lot of international listeners. Yes. And uh, and to, to all of you international listeners out there, like, I, I know you guys all have opinions on what's going on in America. Trust me, you don't know. It's weirder than you think. It's so weird. Because it's, it's dismaying, too. It's like, as, as an observer, uh we have, are we the last bastion of freedom of speech, uh, gun rights, true the freedom? the first bastion of it. Like, that's that's the great thing about America. It's the first place to codify those as rights. I mean, the idea of America is that those aren't rights. Those are things that God gave you. So we just put them on paper so that we can remember them. Yeah. That's the experiment is like, can we maintain a society where we maintain god-given rights uh and and live together and so far the answer has been yes but that's because we've all had an objective reality we can agree on yeah well can transition into bitcoin here like do you think bitcoin gets us close i've been saying recently that bitcoin is the greatest preservation of natural rights natural law since the constitution bill of rights 
Uh, yeah. I mean, I could see. I mean, like Bitcoin. Bitcoin embodies within it a lot of those uh, things. The self sovereignty stuff is. I mean, I think that. I think that liberalism generally, the idea, and, and, and by liberalism, I, I don't mean liberals. I mean the idea that the individual is sovereign. And that means a lot of things. Number one, it means that you own your mistakes and it means that you own your successes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the idea of individual sovereignty is a fundamental God-given reality. Like, there's nothing that you can, you can do about that. And I think that that's always like the, the beauty of America is that we've recognized sort of the liber- liberality of the person. We've recognized that as sort of a sacramental truth that people are people and they are individuals and they are responsible for their rights and their wrongs. And uh, Bitcoin extends that and says, that, and you're responsible for your property. And it's a little bit different than property previously because it's actually yours. Right. Right. And. So does Bitcoin help swing the pendulum back towards uh, a freer society that respects the individual? Of course, I don't think so. No, I, I, see, here's the thing. I think that libertarians like it. Um, I think that certain political philosophies are drawn to it. But I think that I don't think that there's like. I, I think that the way that society tends to work is that there are these things that society has to contend with, right? And Bitcoin's one of those things. It's a thing that society has to evolve with and contend with. I don't think necessarily that you take these sort of like hard logical constructions and then put them into a puzzle piece and say like society is going to reflect this hard logical construction. It's more of a like here's a hard logical construction that society is going to have to adapt to. Mm-hmm. And society will surround it and it'll take whatever philosophy, communism, capitalism, socialism, whatever the hell, you know, fascism and it'll it'll figure out what Bitcoin's place in that world is, right? But I don't think that Bitcoin itself confers any sort of philosophical, uh, you know, advantages. What it might do is it might allow people more mobility so they can opt out of bad philosophies. But I don't think that you end up inherently becoming more of an individualist just because Bitcoin. Hmm. Trying to dissect that. People are, there are rational people and there are irrational people. And they don't become fundamentally more rational because they have Bitcoin or because they have Plato's Republic in their hand, right? You give an irrational book, you give a rational book to an irrational person, they're going to get something very different out of it than you do. And that's how you get California women who believe that crystals, you know, cure cancer. Like, we know that that's not true. And yet there's a sizable portion of the population that will tell you it is. Yeah. So I think a good way to describe it is Bitcoin does not make people more rational. It's a tool for the rational if they want to, uh, want to put into action their beliefs. Right. And, and, you know, here's the other thing, like there's that famous XKCD comic where, you know, the libertarians and they're like, I'm hiding my private key. And then the next like panel is a guy beating his like knees and saying, "What? What? It's your private keys," and he just gives them up. The idea mm-hmm. being that you know, y- your your private keys are in your head until someone bashes you over the head with a baseball bat, and then you're going to give them right up. Right? right. Like they're not. They're, it's not. It's not so secure because it's in your brain. Like you can get shot. Like you can have a communist government rise up above you know around you, and come and take your guns and put you in the gulags. You might still have your bitcoins there. <laughs> <laughs> but, but like you know what good is it at that point 
Yeah. You know, there there is some sort of truth to the sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. There's some sort of truth to that where like you you certain things become unimportant if you don't have the other things. And if you're in a gulag, you're not going to care that you have 3800 bitcoin waiting for you to get out. You're going to hope to get out. Yeah, but before it gets to the gulag, could you agree that bitcoin's a good defensive technology uh, in the world in which particularly financial surveillance is becoming more and more prominent it can be uh again it's another one of those things you have to know how to use it it's like monero people use it all the time and if they don't know how to use it well or or dark coin or any of these others um the dark coin uh yes dark coin still around dash yeah um zero coin or whatever it is uh you have to know how to use these and you have to know how to use them you know like you're you want to hide your Monero transaction, that's totally fine until, I don't know, an FBI agent comes and transacts with you and then, you know, does gets you to do something illegal. Yeah. Like, you're, you're, as, you're as safe from the society you're in as you are willing to opt out of that society. And most of us really aren't willing to do that. And, and particularly, like, the, you know, people criticize nationalism, but that's the thing is, Nationalism is the glue that holds a lot of us, a lot of this together, and people don't leave their countries when they become fascists because they they think that they can make it better, and yeah. and it's brave and wrong, and we all believe it because we don't want to believe that that we did this, that the country we love. I mean, America is a great experiment. I'm not going to abandon it because it turns into a fascist government. Like, I don't think that that's where we're going right now. But, like, I would like to stay here and change it. I would like to fix it. And that's that's what we all want, unless you're Roger Veer, in which case you opt out and you, like, you run like a pussy. Right. Well, I completely agree with that, and that's the way I feel. Like, like what is Veer's importance going to be? What will he have changed? Uh... What will he be remembered for? What will he have done that's brave? Like this is again the the Peterson thing. Like what, what, what hardship will he have encountered that he like overcame and made the world a better place? And it's not Bitcoin Cash, Roger. So shut up. You know, like it, I think it's I, I think it's hard. As if you watch society collapsing around you, you know, you might have obligations if you have a family or kids or something like that. But like I. You, I'm sorry. It's up to us to make sure that this society somehow comes out of all of this weirdness uh, intact. I completely agree. And even as somebody with a wife and a child now, like I feel even more compelled to protect what I believe is important in this For country. For your kids. I mean, this yeah. is the bastion of freedom. You know, America is the only place that, that freedom looks like this. America is the only place where, you know, free speech looks like this. You know, it's it's statuesque and it's brilliant and it's amazing. It's ethereal. It's this sort of impossible standard that we've held ourselves to and or that we've not necessarily held ourselves to, but we've tried, you know, like Judea, the idea of like a Judeo Christian philosophy. One of those very interesting things is that in Christianity, you have the figure of Jesus and and he's this sort of aspirable person to be. You, you can't ever be that perfect because you fucked up when you were three years old. But like, 
you you want to be like him. It's something to emulate. And America's always been that sort of city on a hill that everyone looks to and wants to emulate the success of and wants to emulate the you know the fervency and the and 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 the population the 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 just the fact that Americans work their asses off and the sort of like American way of life. People have always wanted to emulate that. The fact that we retire when we're what 55 or 60 and don't do anything else for the the rest of our lives except drive tra- Winnebago's around America and sleep in Walmart parking lots. Like that's the dream of a lot of people throughout the world. And we we are the bastion of that and it can be made better, but we have this ideal that like we try to hold ourselves to and we fail and we will always fail because it's a perfect ideal. But like I as an individual am not willing to watch people railroad and de- or, or derail that sort of belief system that there's something better out there for us to strive to. And, you know, you don't tear down the whole thing to get there. You get there in small incremental steps and you do it through consensus and you do it through hardship and some people die along the way and some people as a result have much better lives along the way and i I mean there's there's things coming right like we've talked about the ai revolution many times uh how that's going to work i mean i don't know how that works but that might free up a lot of people's time Maybe joblessness is a good idea in that world. Maybe people are going to be doing other things. I don't know. But, like, what do you do when, you know, you have these people here in America who basically fund the entire projects of nation states to get people vaccinated, right? Bill Gates practically put polio, took polio off the map. Practically, not quite. I brought it back in India. Yeah, well, I mean, (laughs) America had a lot to do with that, actually. Really? Yeah. Uh, a lot of the polio resurgence in India and Pakistan is the result of the fact that we were running polio vaccination clinics in order to try to collect DNA so we could find Osama bin Laden. Lovely. Mm-hmm. What, do they expect him to go get a polio vaccine or to find his family? Well, I, they, they wanted to find his family. Mm. And I think that might have been how they did it. Yeah. Um, that was one of the ways. So in Pakistan and India, being a vaccination specialist, uh, from one of these agencies that goes there and does that has become very dangerous because they generally assume you're CIA. Yeah, that's it's a pretty bad situation. But going back to America, like, are we really? Is, I feel like we've been getting further away from the ideal, at least in my lifetime. Patriot Act, uh, the the central banking system. There's uh, always steps. There's always steps back, but I, I don't think I don't think that we've. And, and I think we're going to have to rejigger along the way. But no, we're, we're way more free today, I think, than we were 50 years ago. Um, I think that there are... Really? There are things, I think so. You can't walk through an airport without getting put through a, a scanner. You can't... Well, you get put through a scanner, I get my balls touched. So, like, <laughs> I'm free to pick the massage. Um, but that eats up your time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There, there are restrictions on freedom, and and they change throughout time. But like, they're they're different. There, there's just the restrictions on freedom are different than they today than they were then, and there will always be like this difference. And some of that st- stuff will go away. I mean, I don't know. Maybe at some point the NSA surveillance goes away because I mean, a court did just rule it was unconstitutional, right? Right. So you think about like the apparatuses that are built that like cause less freedom, and a lot of those things eventually get deconstructed. 
And the question is when it's all gone, when the, when the chaff is blown away, what's left? Are we more free or less free? And I look at these things like that. Like, I don't feel like, you know, when I was a kid, I could go straight to the, through the airport and look out the window. Well, you know, we had some terrorists get on planes and fly them into buildings. There's some like levels of freedom I'm willing to give up as long as they don't like interfere with other areas of, of my life. I do fear things like the coming surveillance state type stuff. Um, I fear the fact that like a lot of these social media companies seem to be sort of constructing a social credit system. Uh, I fear that, but I also have faith in the system to sort of incrementally deconstruct those things and to make me in the long term more free. And that might be a flawed belief, but I, I don't think that it's it's unproven. I think that it's been happening over the centuries. Life is better and better here. It's true. If you look at the data, life expectancy, uh, crime Quality rate, infant life, deaths. I, mean, the, uh, I have an iPad. You have an iPad. iPads for everybody. Like, it, it, for the most part, life is much better. And like, I you know I fear things. I, I fear a Maoist revolution. Right. And and during the period that that's happening, if it does happen, Americans are less free. But it's I view these things as temporary blips on the path to like the ultimate goal of, you know, the perfect balance of freedom and like government control. Yeah. And th the thing is, I know it and you know it. That is not a feasible reality. There is no perfect balance. It changes. The beauty of America is that America has enough sort of tenacity and friction in the government to both one change quickly and two remain stagnant, which is uh, they're two sort of competing uh, realities that, that, that make America really able to uh, sort of work slowly towards that goal. And I think the internet poses some problems because like, I think that laws don't really know how to catch up to it. I mean, that, that brings us back to Bitcoin, right? Like the law doesn't know what to do with Bitcoin. They have no idea. And we see that like Ethereum is apparently not a security. Oh, okay. Well, then we have now these DeFi tokens, which kind of, they're like, we are decentralized finance. They're like, what does that mean? It means we keep everything in a server in our office. <laughs> did you see, did you okay, see the drama right. from last night in the DeFi world? No, what happened? Uh, there were some screenshot leaks of, I think, a token called Few uh, of Ethereum influencers talking about dumping on people and and all that stuff. So that was like a huge kerfuffle last night. I mean, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, the, no. the, the reality is, I mean, this goes back to sort of the millennial stuff. Like millennials think that history started in 2006 and... They're unaware of a world, and I, I can empathize with this. It took me a long time to get my mind around like Roman history, because it wasn't modern history, and I was like, it didn't, it doesn't exist. I can't understand like a a pre-Josh, a pre-Junseth era, right? Yeah. It's difficult in my brain to like put that on the timeline, and I think that's the same thing. Millennials have a lot of trouble with that, and so like we come to finance, you know, all of the non-millennials rejected Bitcoin. They were like, fuck that. And we we're like, this is awesome. So we played with it. We bought it. We have it. I don't have any, um, but we have it. And uh, and we have built a financial system. Great. Yeah. Okay. Well, what is what is part of that? Well, we have these things called, I don't know, like stable coins. In, in the real world, those are called, you know, pegged assets. Right. 
stable we coin. changed the name because we invented it <laughs> it's, just, it's the same thing DeFi is literally this like world of finance that has complete corollaries in the real world but that nobody wants to acknowledge the corollaries exist and it has laws that exist already governing it and they'll find that out eventually uh, and the, we'll also see that a lot of people get very rich by making a lot of really stupid choices, just like they did in Bitcoin and Ethereum. I mean, like, the reality is that these things generally don't work. Um, I don't, I haven't seen much innovation that, that I find interesting in the DeFi space. Uh, granted, I'm, I'm not super familiar with most of the projects, but I haven't seen much from what I have seen of the projects people telling me are really excellent. I look at them like, that's stupid. Right. But I've also seen enough in this space to know, that like you can have a really stupid idea go on for ten or fifteen years. Yeah, no, I describe DeFi as an expedited CDO. Uh, there you go. Explosion at some point, like yeah, that's, that's what I, it's just layered, layered risk. In well, my it's opinion. layered obfuscation, and obfuscation is risk, right? Yeah. And, and risk comes with a cost, and so like you're increasing your risk, <clears throat> you're getting standard returns, whatever they are, um, and you know. Like, what have you accomplished? Yeah, a product with bad risk return, right? Like, I mean, yeah. that's, that's like the risk adjusted returns on DeFi are going to be bad, which is, you know, whatever. These, these things exist to rich, enrich the founders. Yeah. They, they don't exist to enrich the users or the people that are holding them. Especially, were you the one to popularize this? Blockchain, blockchains are war. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, so I guess it's a good transition into what brought us <laughs> to this yeah. conversation, which was your thread about Bitcoin maximalism and mining. That's yeah. And as somebody, so, so one interested to go through that thread and two interested to get your thoughts on miners. It seems like you may have like a little disdain for mining. No, uh, I don't have any disdain for mining. Actually. I, I actually, I admire miners. I think they're great. Um, why, why do you think I have disdain for miners? We'll start there. Uh, your quote tweet from, of Steve Barber the other day, the city's going to hire me to poison the water, and oh, I've heard, yeah. and people reached out, uh, miners reached out saying that hey, you've seen. That's what I was like. I don't think he hates miners. I think he may uh, hate some actors in the mining space who are shady in the past. I don't. I don't even hate them. I, I. I find. So here's the thing. I think that there's a lot of people who don't understand what's going on with mining, and mining is pretty simple. Mining is where you turn a computer on and suck energy out of the universe and convert it into pure entropy and heat and stick it back into the universe and uh, and you get bitcoins right yes and and this is this is how it works miners uh, mine up to the point of non-profitability right that's that's obvious you want to go all the way to where marginal cost equals marginal revenue that's that's just rational mm-hmm. all right so what that means is, like, I, I, don't, I don't hate miners. I love them, but they're energy pirates. They go into a place, and they suck up as much energy as they possibly can that is profitable. And then, like, they have no vested interest in the place, right? They're there for the energy. So they don't care that it's in Washington or that it's in, like, Olympia or that it's in Shakopee, Minnesota, or that it's in Bangor, Maine or, you know, like, bumfuck Florida. They don't care. They don't have a vested interest in the community. You look at like they buy, they get a big warehouse. They'll have one, maybe two people run the whole thing. And then they like, they, they mine as much as they can. And then when they're done, they're gone. Interesting. There's, there's no, there's no vested interest. Like they can literally own the place, live in Texas 
and suck energy from Florida. And Bitcoins are a little bit like diamonds, like in the way that you have diamonds like in the ground in Africa, right? Hmm. Bitcoins exist where the energy is cheap. Yeah. I mean, you're talking to somebody who works for a mining company in Great American yeah. Mining. We go to like... So, to push back on that, uh, well, I would admit we don't care about middle of nowhere North Dakota. No, uh, you we, don't. We do care. <laughs> we do care about America and energy independence. So, yeah, 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 but and and there are some legitimate uses for mining in that space. Like I think that, for example, energy transport is hard. Um, you know, I think of like the possibility of like a country having I don't know some lake somewhere in the middle of nowhere, and they're like, well, what do we do with this? And maybe they could build a dam, and they could use a hundred percent of that dam's power to mine. I don't I don't know how profitable that would be. I mean, I just I just think it's interesting. But there are some legitimate uses for miners. But my my thing is like cities that invite miners in are hilarious because they're they're it's like inviting Blackbeard the pirate to come and like be your police force. <laughs> like you you call up a miner like, hey, um, you know, we have we have this thing called energy, which every town has. Do you want to come and suck ours up? And there's only a, there's a limited amount of it in any location. And generally, the, the cities that are asking this are the ones that have excess energy, number one. And number two, they often have subsidies, right? So, like, Niagara Falls will have, like, you know, the, the, some city near Niagara Falls will be buying cheap energy from Canada or whatever. And, you know, there's so X number of megawatts they're purchasing. And miners come in, they eat up the whole subsidy. So, like, they were doing it for the benefit of their town. And then all of a sudden, all the residents are getting, like, 13 15 14 dollar uh, per kilowatt hour power bills and they're like what happened and i'm sitting there laughing my ass off i'm like you invited miners in you dumb <laughs> like, i mean what did you think i told you i told everybody that would happen before it happened the first time i was like this is what will happen they're going to mine to the point where marginal rev that revenue equals marginal cost which means that they will mine the entire subsidy away they have to it's rational i don't have a problem with that but like what I do think is funny is that energy like miners, the, the, the mining exists where energy is cheapest. Energy is cheapest where subsidies for energy exist. So if there's a subsidy for energy, miners will show up. And I think it's a great egalitarian way to bring sort of parity to the global price of energy. I think that's that's exactly what's happening. But and I also don't blame miners for anything like they're not dirty. People talk about how like dirty Bitcoin is because of all the energy wasted. And I'm like, you, you got you got the wrong enemy, man. You should be advocating for eliminations of subsidies. Like mining operations can be smaller. Like we could if 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 energy prices were, you know, twice as high, then the blockchain is equally as secure with what half as much mining. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's why we're focused on off grid stuff and like right, modular right. container like we don't want to compete with the grid because then they kick you out. It's like, yeah, I don't want that. I don't. I don't care what people do. I think that like you know, finding ways to mine and mine profitably are one hard, and two commendable, and uh, and so I don't have any disdain for miners. Uh, any miners listening, you should know that I have no disdain for you. I think you're doing God's work, but I also know what you do. So don't like pretend like you don't. <laughs> like, <laughs> you guys are, you guys are energy pirates, and that's fine. I think that there's a, a role for that. I think that Bitcoin is is a hilarious answer to subsidies because for years governments have been subsidizing without consequence and it's cute like because there has been no no consequence and I think that's what's funny libertarians always talk about the consequences of subsidies and they're stupid libertarians don't know what they're talking about the reason you subsidize sugar is because if you don't subsidize it 
then you have to get it from Brazil or something like that. So Brazil can make sugar at, I don't know, two cents a pound or something. And if America's stuck doing it for, you know, 85 cents, but we can make corn for like three cents, why not like, I don't know, subsidize sugar with corn money? And you can kind of reach a little bit of parity in that. Like it's not necessarily great. Maybe, maybe the argument could be made that maybe America doesn't need to grow sugar cane or something. But a lot of this stuff is actually important from like a national security perspective. You want to make sure that you have all of these things. You want them in balance. You don't want sugar to cost $85 a bag. You don't want corn to cost $1 a bag. So like find some parity, you know, move this money here and make sure that this one costs a little bit more and this a little bit less, you know, that's to me somewhat reasonable. I do think that like a lot of our farm policies get a little bit ridiculous, but that's, it is what it is. Um, and I think that some of that could change, but that's none of my business. I don't have a whole lot of knowledge in farming, but I do know that that there's like some problems there. But when it comes to like energy subsidies and liber well, libertarians will talk about the subsidies generally having these grave consequences, being completely inefficient, et cetera. And generally, you know, the state of the world is such that there really are no consequences for subsidizing. Except now with Bitcoin and energy, the, the consequence of a subsidy is that you literally can now like find energy in China that is cheap, mine it, steal the subsidy and send it to the United States without consequence. It's fucking nuts. That it's is crazy. Awesome. Right? Yeah. But you're pirates. Yeah. I like being a pirate. It's fine. I admire it. Like, I think it's awesome. I think it's such a cool job. I think that mining itself is awesome. I don't, I, you know, the, the idea, and this is what we were talking about, uh, the, the thread that ultimately you and I had, like, you know, bonded over this week. Um, you know, all of these blockchains, they're going for the same resource. And, and that's, I mean, that's the reality of, like, I, the thread that I wrote was about Bitcoin maximalism and what it actually means. And, and the reason I wrote it is because Bitcoin maximalism has this, People have this idea that people are religious zealots. And uh, being, I think, uh, one of the first maximalists, um, the the entire, like, I've, I've thought long and hard about what it is. Because, like, early on, like, Vitalik wrote this post. He actually argued with me and Chris in Skype, got really annoyed, and then the next day had a post up about Bitcoin maximalism. So we've always said that that post was about us, and I'm pretty sure it was. Um, and that was where Bitcoin maximalism was named. And the idea was that it was these like religious zealots, but it's not like I have believed for a very long time that there's not a lot of value in shit coins. And I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to articulate what it is that the problem with shit coins is. And I've got a few answers. Number one, other blockchains don't do anything different than Bitcoin. Agreed. Okay, we agree on that. Other people disagree. Y'all who disagree, you're pretty much wrong. Like, it's you're just wrong. Like, what do they do? Like, what does Ethereum do that Bitcoin doesn't? A virtual What's machine, Turing complete, different scripting language. But again, it's a, it's a... But you could build that onto Bitcoin. It would be Exactly. Expensive. It's an order of operations thing, too. Like, you could build it in layers, too, if you want yeah. to. Yeah. So it's expensive. You guys have an expensive blockchain. Okay, what does is, what is Dash do that Bitcoin does? What does Monero do that Bitcoin doesn't? Privacy? Apparently. But privacy at a cost. These are expensive costs. And yeah. and so, like, that's, you know, like, on Bitcoin, for example, the developers haven't added privacy. They're working on it. 
And the reason is, is because privacy is expensive. And by expensive, I, I mean, it, it's got a lot of load. And, uh, and it's hard to, it's hard to do cheap privacy. It's hard. It's, and then again, go back to order of operations. Is that the highest priority right now? Well, it's for some it is. That's the beauty of open source is that you can have people for whom it is their highest priority. Yeah. But yeah. Bitcoin is, is heavily researched and they're trying to do different things to make privacy uh, as cheap as possible because it comes at a cost. You, you cannot add something to a blockchain at for free. All right. Yeah. So there has to be some complication. But the goal is really to reduce complication in these things. So you have Monero, you have Dash, you have all these projects. Fundamentally, they're all just blockchains. They all use energy to run. They're machines. They're global machines, global kind of businesses. They're just, they're just machines. And they run on energy. And they run on exactly the same kind of energy. And you know we're talking about competition. With Bitcoin, you want to eat up the entire subsidy somewhere. Well, if you eat up the entire subsidy, that actually means that you can't have Ethereum miners in the same location, profitably. Mm. But don't they exist in the same location now? They, they so can. that's so that's so that's my biggest question about your thread. Like, what is yeah. the? Are you are you taking it to its logical conclusion and assuming everything from there? Or well, no, what what I'm saying is this: is that like every miner has the same incentive to mine to the point where marginal revenue equals marginal cost, right? Mm -hmm. And they're all competing for the exact same resource, a resource that's limited. So the point at which that resource is eaten up, you know, you don't have the ability to like make more energy. Yes, you can't use the same only, molecule to mine Bitcoin and Ethereum. Right, there's, okay. there's only so much. Mm -hmm. So like maybe you could do side chains or something like that, whatever the hell it is. But like once the energy is eaten up, it's eaten up. So the question is gonna be for miners, uh, what what is the most efficient the the most high priced coin I can mine at any given time with this energy I have, and what what has to happen eventually is essentially like all of this excess energy is going to be eaten up, it just it will, and it's got to be eaten up by something, and you know miners are going to have to make a choice about what the most profitable thing to to eat it up with is, and I don't think there's a world because like it's an asymptotic function. When you start mining a coin, it starts way up here. It's, you know, price per mining is like very high. And as that, as you go down the timeline, it becomes closer and closer because I also believe that mining is perfectly competitive, right? So a perfectly competitive space in economics is going to mean that profits go to zero. Yes. And uh, if they go to zero, right? That means that essentially you're covering costs. You're paying employee salaries. You're paying executive salaries. You're paying anything that you, you can. And then at the end of the day, there's no like dividends. Farming is pretty similar to that, mm -hmm. right? You you have X amount of field. You're going to end up being able to like pay yourself a salary, decent one, feed your family, you know, whatever. Um, so if mining is perfectly competitive and all of these things are trending towards zero in terms of profitability, like all of the chains are competing for exactly the same resource. They're doing it at essentially the same time. And they're all, I mean, I don't think that they're really competing. I think they're just the same thing. They're all representations of energy spent and burned. And eventually as Bitcoin goes down to zero, like I don't understand why like, you know, Ethereum or Dash or any of these others won't eventually, because like the zero dollars reflects all of, all of sort of the risk, right? To, to run the business, to mine, 
to like operate the chain, chances of chains failing, chances of hacks, et cetera, et cetera. All of those risks are sort of combined into one to reach this like eventual $0 profit. And if Bitcoin hits zero and Ethereum starts to trend and hit zero and Dark and all or Dash and all these others start doing that same thing, eventually one of them is going to be zero and the others are going to be below zero in terms of profitability. So at that point, what happens is miners are going to pick the one that's profitable. Yeah. And that'll but, be Bitcoin. I mean, I, I don't think that it can be anything else because Bitcoin really is the one that has removed the complication from itself. Hey. Like, mining is not competing for algorithm. It's com like, like what, who has the best mining algorithm? It's competing for energy. That's what it fundamentally is. The algorithm is nothing more than a way to prove you spent, uh, spent energy on the operation of doing that math problem. That's it. It is literally a proof of burning energy. Uh, that's the one thing about your thread that I loved is it articulated something I've had in my mind and haven't been able to articulate as well as you did in that thread, which is just looking around at the physical infrastructure, mainly via ASICs and uh, the power generation equipment used to run those ASICs and Bitcoin specifically is far beyond any other chain. And most right. people like DeFi, like likes to use software and thinks it's a software tech innovation and some financial voodoo innovation that's going to be the product market fit. But they're f severely discounting the amount of physical infrastructure investment that's been outlaid for Bitcoin specifically. And you compare that to other chains, just it's not even comparable. Uh, yeah, by far. Bitcoin is the most impressive engineering project uh, and, and will eventually go down in history as probably the most impressive engineering project ever constructed uh, by disparate entities. And... And that's amazing. And, and I mean, the thing is, like, to, to, to the point, like, mining is not complicated, right? Like, you can literally do the math equation on a piece of paper. Uh, and you're spending energy doing that and time, et cetera, et cetera. So, like, you need a global way to basically say that you have paid your way to, like, the solution. That's, and the hash function requires a certain amount of energy to do. And those that can do it for less energy make more money. But you have to expend something to do the hash and that's what's cool about it is that everyone has the same opportunity to do this hash yeah. and that's why it's 100 percent commoditized but what happens when we get proof of stake chains yeah like show me one that's not like uh had problems with things like transaction ordering uh most proof of stake chains have a proof of work element that can be used to game uh things like transaction ordering and whatnot to make people more money and can you know influence the nonce and such like Every single stake chain that exists has a place in it where work can be applied. What do you mean by that? Like, like start off proof of work mining and then transition to proof of stake? And no, then... no, 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 no. So, like, if you have, let's say, uh, I mean, like Ripple, for example, for a long time, it, the transaction order influenced the nonce on Ripple. So, what you would do as a Ripple miner, as a validator is you would spend a lot of time running proof of work to, to, to basically game the transactions such that your nonce, a nonce that would select you, would pop up more often. So you'd work on transaction ordering on your side, and then you would start to like, <coughs> sorry, you would, you, would, you would take the work that you did and you would basically stick it into the chain hmm. and influence the nonce to pick you more often. Uh, yes. And... Proof of, proof of stake pr invariably has an area where proof of work can then be applied to influence it and break it. 
it's just not directly in the protocol it's somewhat outward right and, and, and what they do is they further obfuscate it it's further and further and further down the value chain that you do that and maybe at some point it's unprofitable to do any work on it but like i, I just don't buy that i don't buy that and, and fundamentally like a proof of stake system incentivizes you know it, it it doesn't disaggregate the risks of things as much so it incentivizes holding holding hodling um it incentivizes holding the cash the, the bitcoin or the whatever coin it is rather than spending it whereas with bitcoin you have this disaggregation of the function of use and the function of creation right so like you're not picked because you have a lot of it you're picked because you you spent a lot of money burning power so like there's a fundamental disconnect because like the the better money is the money that has no use right it can't be used for anything else if one of the things you can use your money for is getting more money like that has an use <laughs> like, that's that in itself is fundamentally problematic because it disincentivizes you from using it i mean like i need to buy bread today to eat but if i buy bread i will make more i will make i will hurt my earning potential that's yeah, it's absurd yeah it's crazy and... that's why we have we, we in a in a robust capitalist economy where risks are disaggregated which is what you want you you have separation of these risks and that's fundamentally the biggest problem with proof of stake is that proof of stake combines the risks and it 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 puts the risk on people that shouldn't be taking on that risk it's yeah. a perversion it's unholy and it's also uh it's also like a nice carrot on the stick to keep narratives the narrative funding going right like it's well yeah and it's a way to just incentivize people not to spend i mean like every day that you spend your money is the day that you get, you earn less in the future. Yeah. Like you could do the math on it, but like the incentive for something like an Ethereum is probably to never ever spend it ever. And then a hundred years from now have like a quadrillion trillion quadzillion dollars. Like it's, it's just, if you have 500 Ethereum today or 10,000 or a million or whatever the, the fuck you have, like you should just hold it, never spend it. Eventually what will happen is every single person in the ecosystem will be down to like one or two ethereum and that's all they can afford because they're thirty three thousand dollars each or something like that and uh and you will have a hundred million and you'll just you'll you'll like everybody will get picked at some point but like if you think about that in a proof of stake system you'll get picked that many more times than everybody else <laughs> you'll the exponential growth of your money will so far outpace everybody's that it's going to be the most unequal system ever created and I'm not really one to care much about inequality, but in a proof of stake system, you didn't do any work. Right. Well, you you worked to get the capital to get the token to then stake. No, it. you didn't though. You like once you've done it's not it's not like Windows. You don't buy the software and then like get to use it forever and ever and ever in, in that way, right? Like you don't like it's not forty dollars today and forty dollars tomorrow. It's like with Ethereum. I don't really actually know what that analogy had anything to do with anything. <laughs> I, was trying to figure out. <laughs> I, I got lost. But like with Ethereum, you know, if you have a million dollars today and you just keep it a million dollars, eventually it'll be a hundred quadrillion million dollars, you know? And, uh, and, and now like, like every day with your spending, you're, I don't know, you'll earn more money than anyone in the entire earth has. Yeah. Just because you, you just never spent it. But to, Hey, that, Hey, it's an altruistic project they're going to be spending it they're going to be using DeFi oh yeah. yeah yeah it's an altruistic they're... project where the, the early guys g just get given by the network lots and lots of money because they have a lot of the thing hey their initial pre-mines getting diluted day by day as more supplies coming to the network 
Right. I mean, it's not a great way to have like a circular economy. (laughs) It's not a great way to like incentivize spending and, uh, and healthy growth of an ecosystem. Right. It, it's, it's a weird, a weird issue. So like when Ethereum goes proof of stake, it's going to get really strange because they have a lot of people that have been mining on this thing. They have miners out there. I mean, I anticipate a, a big split if they ever do it. They've been promising they'll do it for, you know, five years now. I don't think they'll ever do it. I don't think they will either. Yeah. I Yeah, I'm, I'm actually very confident they won't be able to. Like, to coordinate, like, and the coordination to, to make it happen. So, yeah, you, you just described, like, you're going to have a split. The miners have bought this hardware. Could probably point it at another GPU chain. I'm not actually sure. I'm not very well versed on ethereum specific gpu mining script but uh on top of that like you have to transition all these apps being built on eth 1.x whatever the fuck they're calling it to eth 2.0 like the coordination effort to do that alone just seems like a logistics nightmare well i am right and i'm wondering when i mean how long do you think before they come up with ethereum 3.0 right and probably already thinking about it the precedent of being able to come out with a new blockchain car every few years that they're setting is, is the funniest precedent I've ever seen. Like, there's a presumption among Bitcoiners and blockchainers generally that you can make an announcement like that and that just everybody will upgrade and that this will just go on without a hitch and that everybody who uses it runs a node is on Reddit and speaks English. Like, that's just not how this works. And, you know, maybe the networks are small enough now. And by small, I mean, like, they're not that big. You know, let's say 11,000 or 12,000 nodes at most, some of these. When you get the whole world's economy on one of these things, which is, I mean, that's that's the pipe dream for a lot of Bitcoiners and ether, etherites. If you get the whole world's economy, how are you going to coordinate that? Like, how are you going to how are you going to coordinate an, an Ethereum 6.0 upgrade? You're not. I only yeah. think they're going to coordinate the 2.0 upgrade. So right, which I think is, I mean, Bitcoin's the most interesting thing here with like the fact that you know this critical software just doesn't they don't upgrade it the way that people do the way that people think of like a, a software upgrade Take they don't have to coordinate it it's like you can keep running the old software we don't recommend it but like you can until you decide not to yeah that's this is a good microsoft analogy here in this case um, yeah <laughs> and the uh yeah and so back to like the mining thread like what i found interesting is that you th- you think the point of the thread where you said miners should sell everything they mine and then individuals within that mining company should get paid out in fiat and decide if they want to buy Bitcoin. Yes. That's an interesting thought. Well, I mean, again, I'm I'm all for disaggregating risk. And I think companies, I think, I mean, look, people who run companies are generally very bad at running companies. I mean, myself included. I, I think that there's people don't do sort of the risk evaluation. What is it that your company is holding risk in, right? And if you're selling hamburgers, that's great. Um, your 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 risks are limited to the selling hamburger industry. Like you don't see like uh, a burger joint like McDonald's also getting into like jet engine manufacturing, right? right? They might have very competent engineers that could do that, but they don't generally do that, you know, because their risk is very specific to what they're doing. And they might they might have a holding company. Maybe their holding company diversifies away things with jet engines. I don't know. But they themselves do not engage in that risk. And a business is a very limited set of like risks. Miners have a lot of risks, like uh, you know the luck the, the luck of an algorithm and all sorts of other things. And 
like a company ought to be taking their risks in fiat because that's just sort of what we like measure risk in like they're not also a trading corporation they're not there to like save they're there to exist and pay dividends that's the purpose of the company they're there to profit right but what if all the stuff becomes more de-risked over time hedging products uh longer asic life cycles more dependable uh well i mean hardware there's, there's things they could keep in bitcoin for like if they're buying asics of bitcoin you might as well keep some in bitcoin right but it might not it might maybe not also because maybe like maybe bitcoin fluctuates enough and you want to make sure like essentially selling to dollars is a hedge what, what happens when we get on a bitcoin standard though yeah <laughs> you know i'll live in that world when it happens yeah. you know like i'm not going to speculate that we're near that world or that we're heading towards that world i live in the i live in the world as it is today and mm -hmm. if you're on a bitcoin standard then risk will be measured in bitcoin and uh, that'll be a different world because Bitcoin won't be volatile to the effect of like dropping 100% or 50% in a week and rising 100% the next one. So like in that world, you shouldn't hold it. Like your, your risk is too high. But if you as an individual who have paid your taxes and done all of your other things want to then also invest in Bitcoin, that's a different situation. Like you can do that without harming the company. But like as a company, as a corporation, your risk needs to be your risk. You need to articulate what that is. And miners, their risk is not, um, you know, what you think it is. It's not like, it's it's not holding the Bitcoin. It's not what they should be, you know, the volatility of Bitcoin is not what they should be risking their business on. Yeah, that's a very good point. But yeah, like so Pay dividends, pay dividends. Like, why would you want your Bitcoin held in the company instead of you holding it? That, that violates the entire sovereignty. That's, that's a good point. Um, my company has Bitcoin. Great. Like, I mean, when people tell me their company has a million dollars in VC funding, I'm not like, boy, you're, you're worth a million dollars. No, that company goes, that, that money goes to the company. Yeah. It's to spend in the company. Like that's the company's money. And that's the same with the Bitcoin. That's, that's not your money. That's, that's the company's money. Right. Pay dividends is, no, that makes the most sense. I mean, you can pay out and you could pay out in Bitcoin. If, if like you were like, you know what? I want 30% of this dividend in Bitcoin. Like, uh, that's actually a perfectly reasonable thing for a mining company to do, I would think, given if it's legal, because, like, they already have them. So, like, pre-sale, you say, like, every two weeks we pay dividends um, and or we sell the Bitcoins, indicate how much you want of your dividend in Bitcoin. I want 40% of my dividend in Bitcoin. Okay. And then the rest goes to cash. Yeah. That makes a uh, makes ton of sense. Especially, and yeah. you pay salaries in cash, you know, or, or Bitcoin if you want, because you when always you have the Bitcoin coming in. Like, a miner... A miner has inventory, right? And it's a product. The product is Bitcoin. The goal of someone holding product is to turn it over. Yeah. I have alarms. I have three houses worth of alarm systems in the back closet of my like office, right? Like $300,000 or something like that. Some absurd amount of alarm systems. I don't want to sit and speculate on whether alarm systems are going to become like are going to come to a shortage like bullets and are going to be worth a lot more tomorrow. I want to get rid of them, get the cash, buy more, turn it over, buy more, turn it over, make 3% on every sale, 12%, whatever it is, you know, yeah. and just turn them over as fast as I can. Yeah. It's a, uh, that's interesting. Conceptualizing Bitcoin as an inventory system as a miner, right? Like, yeah. And that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh 
It's fascinating. So how 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 volatile do you think Bitcoin's price is moving forward? Like, do you think its volatility has arguably been getting lower? Um, I think it looks a lot like it's always going to look for at least a very very long time. I used to think that Bitcoin would be like eventually get to a place where it would be much less volatile. But you know, I look at gold. Gold is highly highly volatile. And I don't see that Bitcoin has to be more volatile or less volatile than gold, you know? That's a good point, but... Well, it's highly volatile. I mean, like, look, like, look, if it becomes a Bitcoin standard, it has to suffer less volatility, right? Yeah. That happens. But again, I don't live in that world right now. And in the world I live in, Bitcoin acts more like gold. And it's going to have a big old market cap like gold. And in my opinion... And if it does that, it, it acts volatility just like gold. Like, I don't see that it has to be any different. I think it, I think that it serves its function even then. And, you know, that's the thing. Like, you look at people using it, like, who are using it maybe for nefarious purposes, where previous to this, their standard was, like, I don't know, a 40% reduction. So they'd make $100, and then, you know, the friction of moving it would cost them 40 bucks. Right. Well, now Bitcoin, they move it, and the friction costs them 20 bucks. you know? Because just just because of the volatility, you know th- that's that's a lot better deal for them. And there's a lot of transactions like that that have these like high friction costs, very fricative, um, you know. And people are willing to kind of give up a lot of money to make sure that they go well. So maybe there's a world where a drug dealer can get money from Chicago to Mexico for free, basically, where they lose nothing. You know, there's no cash out on the other side, and Bitcoin's so stable they just keep it in Bitcoin. There's no ATM or anything like that involved, maybe, or maybe not. Yeah. Well, okay. I mean, and how how much do external factors like central bank policy and fiscal policy play into that? Like, uh, see, that's what again going back to the beginning of the conversation, the the strife, the the riots going on, the 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 wayward feeling that it feels like it's happening in America right now. I feel like, do you? agree with me that it's driven by uh, central bank and p- policy predominantly and can they continue doing what they're doing uh, especially considering what they've done uh, this year particularly it's an interesting question I mean like is Bitcoin driven price-wise by central bank policy um, I think that that's probably a factor in it but I think it's a small factor really yeah I, I don't think Look, let's say that let's say that tomorrow uh, the dollar collapses, right? The central bank is gonna, you know, they'll declare the end of the dollar, they'll devalue it, and then they'll they'll come out with a new currency and they'll just start managing it again. So like, Bitcoin lives in this world where governments exist, fiat exists, and governments make some bad decisions. Sometimes austerity measures cause societal collapse, et cetera, et cetera. Bitcoin just kind of exists apart from that. You know, that's very different than like, you know, uh, the fact that central bank policy can be good or bad. I mean, I'm sure that Bitcoin is going to reflect certain aspects. So, for example, if inflation goes up X percent, um, that makes the dollar this much less valuable. So that would make Bitcoin this much more expensive, maybe. I'm sure that that effect has something. But I I think that it's... uh, I, I bet it's I bet it's fairly negligible. Really? I bet. Interesting. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of central banks in the world. Bitcoin exists among all of them. I mean, Bitcoin is what it is. And I think it, like, I think that America would see a trillion dollar Bitcoin the day that the dollar collapses. But I don't think that's saying anything interesting other than that, like, Bitcoin is priced in whatever currency is local. And if the dollar collapses, we price it in a ruble or something like that. And that would be a very expensive Bitcoin in a world where we have, you know, 10,000% inflation. Well, those expensive Bitcoins already exist around the world, right? Price uh, they do, yeah. Right? But I, yeah. I just, I just like, and I think that those are interesting, but I'm just saying that, like, I think Bitcoin exists irrespective of, like, Fed policy. And while I do think that, like, a million dollar Bitcoin could exist in a world where a dollar collapses, I don't think that's actually saying anything interesting about what, like, the price reflects. So I guess we got to hone in on purchasing power here. What do you think? Right. I think that, like, in a world where Bitcoin is stable and you can actually price things in Bitcoin, that'd be interesting. Um, I mean, a big a big thing with Bitcoin is that, like, menu changing costs are going to be very strange until volatility is under control. Because, I mean, what are you going to do? Have, like, a digital thing at the fruit counter that, like, updates every 10 seconds? Yeah. Like, now, oranges are 37 cents. But now they're 28, you know, point zero 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 two Bitcoin. Now they're point zero 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 two three Bitcoin. You know, like you can't really run a grocery store where someone picks up an orange, gets to the counter, and it's like a dollar or like half of you know half fifty percent more. Yeah, I mean, when they bought it, picked it up. This is like stories out of Argentina of people racing to the grocery store after getting their right. paycheck. Well, you you want you want grocery stores to have like price parity for like twenty four hours. You want yeah. them to have like consistency. For at least a short time so that you can like walk out of there with what you thought you were getting. You don't get in there, have to go, you know, spend five minutes because if you leave in 10 minutes, it'll be double the cost. You don't want that. Um, no. So Bitcoin's not great for that yet. Maybe it will be. I mean, we'll see. But that, yeah. that goes to your thesis. You think that volatility will cool down a little bit. I think, well, right, because if you just assume that adoption keeps on the pace that it has up to this point, you're going to hit a critical mass at some point. Um, and at that you think point... gold ever got there? Yeah, I think so. Then why is it so volatile? Well, it's been... It was. It had a very long period where it wasn't too volatile. Yeah, but Bitcoin does too, though, right? Like, it, Bitcoin will go two, three years within yeah. a $1,000 band. Yeah, we're, I'm talking centuries, though. Uh, zoom in on those centuries. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe. I mean, that's true. Gold was used as a currency, but that was largely because we didn't have, like, markets, you realize, right? Like, gold is pegged. Hmm. I'm trying to think. I mean, what I'll about, give you a like, great example. What about, like, the free banking system of Canada in the, the 1800s? That existed for a while. So I don't know a lot about that, uh, the free banking system of Canada. I, I should read about that, but, like, I can tell you back in, uh, you know, Isaac Newton days, uh, gold was pegged in England and it wasn't pegged in France. Right. Mm -hmm. So what was happening is people were clipping coins in England, going to France, selling the gold and then coming back to England with French money and buying more gold coins and then doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. And it was a perpetual motion money machine until England realized that something like, I don't know, $60 billion or something like that had disappeared from their economy. I, I need to read up on that. That's fucking fascinating. Yeah. And and so, like, that's the thing. Like, the, the world has had, like, stable periods of gold because, like, we pegged gold. America pegged gold, too. Yeah. So we have to peg Bitcoin? Are we getting pegged here at some point? Uh, yeah, <laughs> we're getting pegged. We're prison, 
present claims. <laughs> um, I don't think. I, mean, I think. I think the era of pegging is over. I don't think you'll be able to like peg assets like that hmm. anymore. So just have a free float, volatile. I think that's the only way the world works at this point. Like that's how we. That's how it works. People call in their, especially with the internet. Like things are so quick, right? So you yeah. can't like remove the peg, right? You can't have a peg, legitimately. And the internet will just allow for like a black market to exist like in a second. Yeah. That's what happens in these countries. Is like they'll peg their dollars to something, and they'll say like our dollars are worth one Big Mac at McDonald's. And you're like, okay, um, but look at the like real price over here. Like there's an internet website that you know tells us the real price. It's the blue value or something. Yes. Like. Yeah. This happens in Argentina. Like, exactly. Uh, John Seth, what does the future hold? Will we preserve freedom? Will Bitcoin we'll succeed? <laughs> That's true. We can't Might be a long that. time, but like you know, the funny thing about life is that we all work really hard to make the world a better place in our own little way. And then, and then we keel over and give it away, and and we do that to the day we die. We like, you know, I think men are particularly guilty of this, um, insofar as they just want to work, right? It's it's inherent, and I think that like we just work our asses off until we no longer can, and then we keel over. And the future, like I think that everybody does want a better world, and I mean like the near future, I think things are going to get pretty bad in the U.S. Um, specifically here, but I'm I'm praying that there's not this like new new world order kind of thing that really ex- like Illuminati like thing. I'm really hoping it doesn't, and I'm really hoping that like we as Americans are able to like pull us pull ourselves back from the brink and uh, and to save save our country. The Great Reset is coming. Are you ready for um, for global communism? <laughs> uh, it might. I mean. I mean, the, the amount of spending we've done, the acceptance of MMT is like a sort of, you know, uh, position of the Fed. Uh, I mean, I could see it. I describe I describe MMT as, yeah, it's Fed policy, but it's just trying to granularly manipulate the flows of the created funds more yeah, directly. Yeah, I mean, it, the reality is that the printing of money... I mean, governments have a couple of ways to, to raise money. One is print it, one is tax for it, right? And in some ways, like, we've never really done the printing part. Like, I think libertarians would disagree, but we haven't. Not not like we could have. Um, MMT is sort of the, the reification of, like, this other alternative to taxing. And it's a, it's a big power the government has, and it can be very dangerous. Um, but, you know, it's one way to, to raise, and maybe it's a way that like America does it to, to lower taxes or something. I don't know. Uh, but it's... Well, it's. You don't think we've ever printed money? I, I know we've printed money? money, but not to the degree that we are now. Like, money, you know, we've kept inflation at around 3% per year. Oh, I thought you were say, arguing that we're not printing money right now. I was like, uh... No, no, we're printing money. Yeah. But, like, we've, we've kept it... We've kept, uh, like, real money down, you know, to a, a nominal level. Yeah, the Fed's balance sheet was, what, 800 billion 2007 something like that yeah and what is it today five point something trillion i think maybe so there's a big difference um and you know like i said the fed can raise money you know in a couple ways and i think printing is printing is a viable alternative to taxation i think that like libertarians don't want to acknowledge that but it is 
And uh, I, I think I, I think that like there is some level of printing that is okay. That makes and then sense there's to some me. level of printing that pushes you over the edge. And like all states eventually go bankrupt. They they devalue their currency. I mean, England's gone bankrupt. Most countries have. Only a couple have not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's argue, arguable that we're bankrupt right now. We're just trying to, you have the decision of direct default or default via inflation. The, is... the beauty is that, uh, and I think this, you should read a book called Fishing for Fools. Or no, this time it's different, it's called. It's by Ken Rogoff. And he talks about like the history of defaults, national defaults. It's a, it's a very interesting book, and you know. He acknowledges that like inflationary default is considered default, yeah. and the fact that people don't think that we've committed inflationary default means that we haven't, which is a weird reality. Mm -hmm. You only know you've defaulted when you. Well, Except if you've, you, it, it, you can know it because, like, you do something absurd, like actually, <laughs> you know, get like print so much money that like you have to print a trillion dollar bill, yeah. right? Was this before you started pushing cashless societies? Um, Rogoff's been on that for a while. Uh, he, he's a he, his book on money is real stupid. He has a lot of chapters on Ethereum. Uh, he's very, very like excited about like Ethereum. It seems like in particular, really. I don't know why. Yeah, Ken, at least in his book. I uh, I've had the pleasure of seeing Larry White and Ken Rogoff debate at Soho Forum. Well, I, it's not very convincing. Yeah, yeah. I've had a, I've had a couple exchanges with Ken over email trying to get him on the show. Um, and you know he's a hard one to pin down. Yeah, he doesn't uh, seem, seem like the type he, of guy to be open to that. I think he really likes female journalists. Really? Mm, Ken. I might pretend to be one. Did you? I, I might. <laughs> Do it. June. Just June. But, I mean, yeah, right? Like June? Yeah. <laughs> June Seth. June Seth. My last name's Seth. First name's June. Hi, Kenny. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> very interested to learn about cashless societies like to learn you know um <laughs> but i would like i'd like to get him on the show but like you know he's he's got he's had some very good books i think that the, the default book uh is absolutely phenomenal i think everybody should read it it'll it'll teach you a lot it, it should reset your like libertarian thinking on stuff a little bit like a default is a thing that like happens and you can't say like we're really bankrupt and we're just like slowly you know whatever because it's not real like, you're bankrupt when you cannot pay your bills tomorrow. It's A state can't really go bankrupt because they can print the money to pay their bills tomorrow. Right? It's just the amount of money that will be needed to pay those bills will differ. Sure. Um, yeah. And maybe that's really bad. But, like, a state can't really go bankrupt. So it's not really the right concept or word for a state. And a, But a state can default, and that happens. And they can default through inflation. And, but we haven't done it yet. Like, the United States has not been recognized as a country that has defaulted. Yeah. And, I mean, this week alone, the dollar has been strengthening pretty pretty aggressively against other currencies. Everybody wants to be in the dollar. Right. It's hard to make the case that we've defaulted or that we're bankrupt when the dollar is strengthening. Yeah. That's a good point. Mm. So what, uh, I don't think I'm a libertarian. People like to say I'm a libertarian. I don't know what, what I am. What? What do you think you are? I don't know. I like your description at the beginning of the episode. I like the First Amendment. I like the Second Amendment. 
I hate Marxists. Uh, I hate Marxists. Uh, you could be well. an anarcho millinerist. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if I'm going to. I mean, I like the Second Amendment, but I don't own any guns. Well, you no, know, you could be. You don't like guns. Oh, no, you I, don't like I don't. Uh, I like them, but I don't own them. Um, Nobody owns them. Really? I have. Oh, you got a license. I have Bitcoin. Zero. Hmm. <laughs> uh, no, no, that's. I mean, that's the thing. Like, yeah, I, I think. I think it's okay. I, I will say, you are free riding a little bit by not having guns. Am I? I mean, I plan on getting one at one point. What uh, kind are you going to get? I don't know. I'd like an AR-15. Hey, that's a good one. You should do that. Yeah. Go, go well, tomorrow. Find one. <laughs> Let me know if you do. I am in a... Uh, you can't find them right now. I'm in a Second Amendment sanctuary county within New Jersey. So I live up here. I live up north where guns are very, very frowned upon. lived in New York for six years. Pennsylvania is actually more lenient, obviously. Yeah. Philadelphia, not so much. And AR-15 is a good choice. I mean, you know, like, I think as a first gun, that's a, that's a good one to get. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I, I do think that like a lot of people do like free ride. I think it's good to have your own, uh, j- j- like frankly, because you know you never know when China invades or Russia does something real stupid. And and the other thing is, is it, like it's good for home defense. You know, it's pretty simple. But I think as an American, like it's important to have one so you have a vested interest in the Second Amendment. That's a good point. All right, I'm gonna go buy a gun tomorrow. Um, find one. Let me know if you do. I will. There's they're, uh... they're so hard to find. They are so hard to find right now. There's a range right off the uh, the island I'm on. That's oh, yeah? yeah. I'll come up there and shoot with you sometime. Hey, if you're ever uh, in the area, let me know. I'd love it. I mean, I'm bummed uh, last year's North American Bitcoin conference. I did not make it to your meetup that you had. I know. We were so You sent a, a surrogate. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, they had a lot of fun that night. Two surrogates. They were raving Good. about it. You guys yeah, met. It was, that was a blast. I told them to tell, tell, uh, tell you I was mad that you didn't come. I know. I had a. Uh, well, I forget. This is actually our had. first face to face, everybody. So like, I'm looking at at Marty. I, don't, I didn't actually know what he looked like. Yeah, <laughs> this is what I look like. Just uh, some white bro. Pretty handsome. <laughs> uh, Exhausted. I have sex with him. My uh, I'm sorry if I, I'm dragging here at the end. My son woke up at 4:30 this morning. I'm like fucking beat. Um, but no, I've been waiting for this conversation for years. Having uh, a <laughs> been a been a fan of your your initial foray into podcasting with the rose and uh your take i mean i think your blockchains war our war take and the your description of ethereum on your website which is still front and center is what convinced me that this fucking doesn't make any fucking sense yeah i mean there's there's just a lot of i mean i've been here a while i've seen a lot of this stuff i mean i, I think the reality is and i said this earlier about the millennials not realizing that history existed before 2006 uh, all of this stuff is just corollaries to things that have existed for 100 or 200 years. And I think that there's a lot of things. I mean, like, people should learn the history of markets and understand how we got where we are. Like, the idea that companies are split into tiny little shares that you can buy on an open market, that's not old. That's not that old. No. It's like 1400s. It's old to some people. Well, it's old, but, like, it's, like, you know, there's... There's many older things that we do, and you'd think that that would have been like we take that as such a thing that you know for granted, like well, stocks and shares. Like people don't realize that like stocks and company have value because the government says that when you own a stock, you own part of the company, and they they hold you to that. So like now, as a company owner, you can sue the board of directors for fucking you over. 
you know, you can make speeches at their like shareholder meetings. Yeah. Um, you own a percentage of that company, small one, but you own yours. And and these innovations are on the same timeline as us inventing tools in agriculture and putting the context of that. Right. Rhetoric. No, that's why I was fond of, I took Latin for six years, five years. Um, so I was forced to translate a lot of Roman history. And so like learning just how, uh, like rhetoric came to be like the Catalan conspiracy, like dissecting that and understanding how Cicero called out Catiline and methodically destroyed his attempt to dethrone him. Right. I mean, there's, I mean, there's so many things I think people don't realize, like even, even in the modern day, like I think that we don't realize how many opportunities there are for invention. I mean, literature, the, the types of literature we have each of those. I mean, think about it. There was a day, when you know fiction wasn't a thing, and then someone wrote, you know, did something their their first fiction novel. There was a time when nonfiction was was not a thing. Um, Truman Capote is is recognized as the first guy who really ever wrote sort of a narrative account, a long book form account, narrative account of like a news story. So that's recent. Well, this could transition us into a final topic, which I wanted to touch on: is digital art. I don't get yeah. it at all. Is it innovative? Like, is it like, why would I spend money for a file on a computer? In a yeah, database? so I mean, that's a good question. I mean, art, why would you spend money on it? Why would you spend money on any art? Uh, art, I think, there's, I think there's a lot of questions about what art is, and I think people don't understand how it works. And, you know, this actually goes back to sort of Bitcoin Uncensored. I always viewed Bitcoin Uncensored as an art project. It was an art project, and the entire purpose of it was to enter into the dialectic and like force people to ask questions that they wanted to ask themselves, right? I, I don't think that we did a lot of telling you what to ask, um, unless there was like some emulation. But like for the most part, it was like supposed to be two idiots sitting in a chair asking hard questions that they weren't supposed to know the answers to, and sometimes did, and sometimes just like you know, mainly just people would kind of fall all over themselves, and. Uh, I always viewed it as art, and I, I took I took that entire project uh, as much as I could in sort of this artistic direction. And the reason it worked is because it was it was such good dialogue with people. People were able to participate in the dialogue. It changed the way they thought. It changed the way they argued. It was a school of sorts, right? And it was timely. I don't think you could do Bitcoin Uncensored today. And no, you can't was, be hosting I, episodes in a bathroom anymore. Right, and it was cultural, right? Like. Um, we were making fun of an import of an industry that really thought of itself as like, it was starting to think of itself as stodgy. And we, the entire purpose was to show these bankers who were showing up in suits that they can come. They just got here and we're the 16 year olds who know way more than they do. Right. Right. So here's our butt. <laughs> so fuck you. Um, hi, hi, Blythe masters. Uh, nice to meet you. You just got here. Shut the fuck up. Go to the back of the room. Right. Right. So there were, there were, it was an art project and that was the purpose of it was to like spark dialogue and teach and teach through, you know, sort of the Socratic method, asking questions and getting people to ask themselves and to follow like our train of thought and to like come up with their own sort of trains of thought and, uh, and to just really spark dialectic. Um, I don't think it always did that, but I, th- I think that was the goal. No, and... cer- somebody who watched that show, it certainly sparked some of those uh trains of thought in my mind right and, and also to be non-judgmental the, the idea being that like you should be able to think any thought you want even yeah. if it's a fart joke 
Uh, and I think that's important. Like the open-mindedness is important. And, and that's what art really should do. Art should question the status quo. It should push norms and push the status quo and make people think and ask questions. So like the very question, why should I pay for a digital token is, is a pretty funny one. And it's, it's a question of art. Uh, I, I do think that there is, I, I don't know. I, I, I think that the art market has a very strange place in the American financial industry right now. Mm-hmm. It, it basically acts as a store of value for very wealthy people, right? So like you have a Picasso, it goes for $150 million. The guy hangs it up above his, I don't know, table. Uh, he doesn't care that much about it, doesn't really know anything about it, but he, he did it because he knew that it was worth, you know, to the next guy, $100 million. And so it's a good, like, way for him to just have $100 million hanging on his wall, and then eventually, if he wants to, get it in cash. Right? Pretty simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's acted as a store of value, but, like, now there's a new store of value. Like, Bitcoin can serve that function. Yeah. So I could see the top uh, the top art market... I could see Bitcoin be highly disruptive to it. And I also don't think that, like, I don't see there, I think there's any reason to think that, like, physical art is going to be what people put on their walls. I mean, like, if I buy art, I'm buying, you know, a two or $3,000 piece to put on my wall. Mm-hmm. That's the same as, like, a TV screen. Yeah. So, like, I mean, if you could figure out a way to display art that you actually own on a TV... That is the art that you own. Um, I mean, that's it's it's as, it's no more ridiculous than Andy Warhol making screen printings of like the Last Supper. Yeah, you know, well, each one guess, of those is the same. <laughs> They're not any different than the other ones. I guess it gets to the point is like how much effort was put. Like, I wouldn't consider pop art or modernist. I was forced to take art history class in college. Yeah. Um, uh, like like Jackson Pollock forward. Predominantly, I wouldn't consider any of that art, but like something like. Well, what about ja- what about Jackson Pollock's early works? Um, uh, not as well versed on his early works. I started learning about him when he was fucking splashing canvases and putting cigarette butts out. You'll find out that he was a competent painter. Was he? Very. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like, I look at Jackson Pollock, and I think to myself, like, Jackson Pollock is sort of the like final Monet. Like, you have you have Monets who start to like do these things on canvas we have photography at the time perfect representation coming out on film so what do we have we have the development of these schools of art that are a little bit more abstract right and so now you're like doing sort of this abstraction and you're painting a lily pad or something like that and it kind of looks like a lily pad it can make it out and then you have the further and further like experiment in the abstraction of things you know and in some ways art became this like sort of pure abstraction where like you're painting the soul of the lily pad right you're not painting the lily pad you're painting the soul of the lily pad and i look at a pollock and like the splatter paint stuff highly experimental um sort of the final abstraction the the final version of this abstraction it's as far as you can push that medium right Mm -hmm. and that doesn't make it good it just means that that like is part of the conversation of like what art is like i find pollock to be very pretty I find those things to be very appealing to the eye. And I, I actually think they have like a very important place in the dialectic of art, in the movement of art, because they do push the medium as far as it can go. Now, maybe it's worthless to you visually, but it's sort of like, hey, guys, here's the bumper. 
And what you end up with is the result of Pollock is you have people who like de-abstract. And then you come up with some of this like street art. Um, you have Shepard Fairey and you have all of these other people who are kind of pulling back the abstraction a little bit, right? And then going the other way where like you have shadows of people, you know, with uh, what's his name? The, the famous Banksy. Banksy. Banksy, yeah. that's the shadows, you know, and those that's very different. Yeah. But it's got like... Give me one. Give me one second. Take it. Jump that sensor and call mid podcast. I wonder if his mic will pick up this phone call. Uh, no, he's not sending me a file. I'll be coming from Zoom. Hope your freaks are still listening. It's a very interesting conversation. All right, back. <laughs> All right, everything okay? Um, yeah. So anyhow, like I think that there's this the, the the idea of like sort of abstracting and then de-abstracting the art. I think like art art is a continual thing, and they're like artists are always trying to push the boundaries and figure out what they can do. And as much as I like, you know, very real uh, photographs of people. Like those sort of arts are uh, that art is taken by cameras, right? You don't need the like, here's an exact representation of my face anymore. Mm -hmm. Someone doesn't need to paint that. You can now have someone do a little bit more abstraction and bring out something else in, in, in the painting and such. So I guess we have to, in my mind, separate between abstraction and absurdism, right? Like uh, having lived in New York, been to MoMA, particularly in Modern Museum of Modern Art. It's gotten to the point where people walk through that museum and they don't even know what is art. Like somebody could drop a fucking glove on the ground. They're like, oh, somebody thought a lot about this. And it's like an unmade bed. Can I point something out, though? Like these these things where people take bananas or, or like a phone or whatever and they put it on a stand. Yeah. And people go and start looking at it. I got news for you. That is art. <laughs> is and, it though? What's that? Like how much effort does that take? Like should art always so... about effort? I always said this. I said this to Chris back in the day. I said every artist wants to be so proficient at their art that they can take a shit on a canvas and call it art and sell it for a million dollars. That is every artist's dream, and uh, and that is that is what you want. Like that isn't that Derrida's uh, like urinal? Isn't that what that is? Um... That's that's literally his commentary on effort and like what art is. Yeah. Ah. Is art subjective too, obviously. Right, but he's so. he, Duchamp, that's it, not Derrida. Yeah. Duchamp. Um but like that's that's the thing. Like art is a conversation and Duchamp pushes it one direction and it's commentary, right? He says like, Hey guys, the art's getting stupid. Here's a urinal. Yeah. Okay. Well it's art, that's commentary. And it, it might be bad art, but it's 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 interesting nonetheless. Hmm. And it's worth a lot of money because <laughs> Duchamp touched it. What about uh? What about beautiful things though? We don't make too much beautiful art. Is beauty subjective as well then too? Well, there's a lot of that. I mean, art is. The thing is, you can find beautiful art. Um, there's plenty of art that is that is that exists as art for the sake of having beautiful art. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of art that exists as quality commentary, and I find the art to be that that if you want to look at the art that withstands time. At least now, I mean, I think the commentary is what's more important. I think Banksy is important for that reason. His art is commentary. 
What do you think of South Park? South Park is high art. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think commentary is the highest form of art. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'll stand by that. <laughs> like, I, I think it's the hardest art to do. I think it's the, the hardest art to make. And I think it looks the least, like the lowest effort art. Yeah. That's a good point. I go back and forth. And like bringing well, it back to non-fungible tokens, like rare pepes and stuff like that. I've never understood the, like why people would spend money on an NFT, but I do, funnily enough, like respect the fuck out of people. That are like we talked right. about Joe Looney before we recorded. You obviously talked about rare, rare pepes in the past. Theo Goodman makes me laugh all the time. Uh, I love Theo. I, uh, Best ironist in the space. Right. But but just last thing to put on the art, like you're talking about about an effort. And I think that, I mean, we've all heard the story, and I think it's probably apocryphal, but it's a good story nonetheless for illustrative purposes, where, uh, you know, Ford needs someone to come and fix a generator. And a guy comes and he, like, he puts an X on the generator, and he does something for five minutes, and uh, and then he turns a 40 he's like that'll be a thousand dollars he's like what you what that was like five minutes and he's like you know or he goes how much like something like all you did is draw an x he's like oh the oh god i'm fucking the story up what is it <laughs> um, i haven't heard the, this the one x, yet. was it drawing the x is free knowing where to put the x was a thousand dollars or something like that mm-hmm. um but like that's that's the idea is that like he spent a lifetime learning where to put the x and there has to be sort of an art equivalent of that right where you show up, you draw an X, and people are like, oh, well, that's art because he did it. He did it in a certain way. And I think that's the Duchamp urinal, right? Duchamp worked very hard to be able to put a urinal in a gallery and say that's art. And it's art because, you know, everybody knew why it was art. Because people respect his commentary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it took a lifetime to get there. So maybe that art was low effort, but it's because he spent so much time. He spent, he spent 40 years making that art. Interesting. And before he got to the urinal, was he is Duchamp the guy who made like just like the white sinks? Was that uh, he no. might have been. I mean, he did a bunch of them. I think I think Duchamp also did the uh, spindle inside of a inside of like a three pronged stool, mm-hmm. like just yeah. like a spindle, <laughs> like a bike wheel. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he did a bunch of those. And I, I mean, I I don't want them in my house, but I understand why the MoMA has them, and I understand like what they like what period of history they occupy. You know, and a lot of these things are interesting, too, because, like, they, they have historical meaning. Like, the CIA got involved in the creation of art. On some MK Ultra shit, or? No, 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 no. Like, they were trying to, like, fight Russian propaganda. Ah, uh, And yes. so they were, it was sort of, I mean, it was CIA, but it was art commentary, basically, on, like, what, on the limits of being able to push art. I mean, it was, frankly, I think it was probably during Pollock's time. I wouldn't be surprised if Pollock was one of these artists. Um, but there's a lot of artists who were making art basically at the direction of the CIA, particularly guess, of the abstract stuff. Yeah, and I guess this gets to a good point is the art's a reflection of the current condition. And if you want more beautiful art, maybe fix your condition. Maybe. Or Some of the most maybe. beautiful art comes out of the hardest time, though. All right. Look at books. Who's the best, who, who has the best books? Um, Obviously the Russians. The... If you say anything else, I'm going to punch you in the face. The Russians only... have the best books. They have the best fiction. And they also have some of the best nonfiction. I mean, Russian literature is on another level. And I, I don't know how they do it. When I read a, a piece of Russian literature, that thing is like, 
it's commenting on a world in a very how you say like non-participative way mm-hmm. it's like the person's observing even of himself kind of like a dream just floating above the scene he's like floating above himself and like i i don't know how they achieve this but it's it's a remarkable way to write and there's just no question in my mind the russians have the best literature i read it and i'm in awe of it uh and it's unique in aspect and it comes out of hardship so I mean I don't think that that's necessarily mm. the case. I think I think maybe beautiful art can come out of anything, but good art can only come out of maybe hardship. That's a good point. That's a very good point. I need to read more Russian literature. You got to read as much as you can. I mean it's such a delight. Where would you recommend one start if they need to get into Russian literature? I mean it, Russian literature, I mean you could start with the plays of uh like like this like the seagulls and stuff like that. Um was it cha Cha, what's his name? Tchaikov. <laughs> uh, the seagulls written by. Written by Chekhov. 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 Anton Chekhov. Um, Anton Chekhov is a perfectly good uh, read. It, it, like, in fact, and it's shorter too. It's, it's just plays, right? So uh, you can read that. Uh, you could read. Dostoevsky or um, any, you know, any of the, just the big ones, just start with any of them. And what's funny is when I talk to Russians, they have like all sorts of other, other uh, authors that you've never heard of that they, that they read. And I'm sure that those would be delightful too. I'd be wondering to see how, how well the, uh, the English translations are. I think is it even more beautiful if you read it and understand Russian. Yeah, I, I don't know. I would like. I would wonder yeah. how it like comes off in Russian. Uh, but like, all I can say is in reading in reading Russian literature. I mean, uh, Chekhov's plays are are very good. But just the the like the fiction itself, and and even like the, the nonfiction stuff they have is just it's phenomenal. Yeah, and it's just worth it's worth everybody's everybody's time. And and I would say uh, second best literature comes out of France, which is weird. But I mean, a lot of the great literature of that day is literally out of the French Revolution. Yeah, a hard time. Victor Hugo and such, right? Yeah. Uh, and then third, I'd put America, and I think that's probably just more pioneering, like people building building America and writing books. Moby Dick uh, is a great example. Uh, Heart of Darkness, which is written by a guy who you know, Conrad spoke like four languages, <laughs> like English wasn't even his first language. But, you know, Americans, uh, Grapes of Wrath and whatnot, um, are just absurdly good writers. Yeah. Bitcoin sign guy would love that you mentioned uh, Moby Dick. Oh, yeah? Moby Dick fan. Yeah. Is that what he so. named his? No. Um, <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I, I think art, but, but anyhow, back, back to the sort of final point. I do think that there's like a place for digital art. I don't know exactly where it occupies the market. It might be that art, the art market falls because of Bitcoin, right? I could yeah. very well see Bitcoin putting a, a like, a, like being the death knell for high cost art. But it might be that like there's a huge place for digital art, such as like you would buy at Marshalls or something like that. You know those like eighty dollar pieces, so that everybody mm-hmm. can have something very nice in their uh. house. And that might be the kind of thing it does. I mean, there's I don't like I said I don't think it's any more legitimate to have digital art than to have you know a screen printing of an Andy Warhol. Yeah, uh, interesting. 
Will there be supreme like demand for some NFTs? Who knows? I don't see why not. But it, yeah. maybe not also. But I think it's a, I think it's a worth a worthy exercise to think about that because like it's not really the function of Bitcoin, but it's interesting. And yeah. it's 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 like it's asking questions, I think, that need to be asked. Yeah. Well Which is what art does. Well, thank you for sitting here and ask, answering my dumb questions tonight. Yeah, they're not uh, dumb. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for thank you for letting me fart on your show. Oh, you can come and fart on my show whenever you want. They smell great. Uh, this is uh, it's been a pleasure. I'm really pumped to be able to do this. We should do this again, and hopefully we can meet in person. I can I be... do the sign-off? Yes, you can. All right. Hey, everybody, this is John Seth chunking up the deuce to the south, the masses, and to go in peace. St. Catherine, pray for us. <laughs>